Listeners everywhere, welcome to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan, the weekly fix for your screen addiction and a trusted source for discussion of all things film and television. Please keep in mind that for the purposes of this podcast, Joel and Ryan are not acting as journalists, but rather fellow moving picture enthusiasts. All of their opinions should be taken as such. Also, please be warned that while Joel and Ryan may seem like petulant children, they are, in fact, adults who may occasionally use adult language. While they promise to keep out all the worst words, it's a good bet you will still understand what they were saying. And now, with no further ado, here's Joel and Ryan. Welcome to the movie show with Joel and Ryan. Welcome. I am Joel. And I'm Ryan. And we have reached the autumn. The autumn of 1982. It's taken us a while to get here, admittedly. And maybe we should have gotten here faster, but we are having fun. And I think we're allowed to have fun because, you know, it, it's our podcast. And... Um, and, and so we hope that you have enjoyed thus far two-thirds of the year of 1982. Um, and it has been, I mean, just, I mean, not that you need it, but boy, quick, you know, the title, some of the titles that you've missed out on. If, you, if you're, if for some reason you're just joining us at the third part of 1982, you missed out on Conan the Barbarian and, uh, and uh, One from the Heart and Swamp Thing and Rocky Three and Mad Max 2. Oh, and did I mention a couple little films called E.T., The Extraterrestrial, and Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and Blade Runner? Did you heard of it? Tron? Best little horror house in Texas? But, you know, now we're going to get, uh, as we get into the fall here, now we're going to get into the prestige films. It is, uh, you know, now we're now we're aiming towards Oscars and awards. Uh, people going, I got to get me one of them Golden Globes. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. That typically, although this, this not, these days it starts like right in the sort of back to school area. Those films start coming yeah. out in festivals and stuff. Um, but back then, it's still we're a yeah. couple months away from that. I will add uh, one thing. One thing I should say. One from the heart doesn't count. Not in so Oh, that's right. I said the one sure. movie that isn't. <laughs> it's not the one. There's two, but it's the one there's that doesn't two, count. And actually, it isn't on our list. <laughs> and yeah. I told you I wouldn't tell you what the other one was, but Joel just named it. Um, because I just considered it 82 and I'm sticking to my guns, even though it's against my own rules. I, it's my prerogative to do that. You, uh, you can call me out on it, but you won't. Let's face it. You won't. Yeah. You yeah, you won't, won't do that. Because you know what? Rules, we're not breaking rules. We're just bending them. But let's revisit real quick before we move on, because I feel like we're going to yeah. be okay on time for this one. The summer really kicked our butts, and we appreciate you sticking to the end of that show. Um, but it, the movies just kept on coming all right through August. I mean, you it, you know, what do you want? Even, even the silly Beastmaster that wrapped it up is still a film that, whose legend has only grown beyond so far beyond its modest box office take for the late August, you know, time that it came out. But let's revisit just briefly the songs. Cause there are a lot of songs. Am I right, Joel? Right. We said, I have a tiger yeah. hard to say, I'm sorry. Love lift us up where we belong. Somebody's belong. baby. Um, 
the one that I skipped that, uh, you know, uh, I Will Always Love You. I Will Always Love You would have won an Oscar for Best Song in 1982 if, if if the Oscars were anything like they are today, which is where mm-hmm. really only songs that really get a lot of attention, I shouldn't say only, but largely the songs that get a lot of attention are songs that characters sing in the movies. Those are given extra weight when the Oscars roll around these downs than the ones that just play during the closing credits. Even though if you get enough superstars involved in those, they will show up at the Oscars as well. Um, but they really got to be a superstar to do it. A great song just isn't enough. And this year, hardly any of these songs, these are all the, some of the top songs of this era and recording in 82 is just a fantastic year for radio hits and radio music. Um, uh, the song we left off is from Night Shift. Um, and I'm not talking about uh, Quarter Flash's Night Shift, which is a fantastic song, the opening credits <laughs> song. That's a really, really good song. Um, I'm talking about the closing theme to Night Shift, which is That's What Friends Are For. That song, yeah. which was the top song in 1985, the top song of 1985 in terms of sales and airplay, was written sp- specifically to thematically fit in with the themes of night shift and there's the rendition of rod stewart singing it that plays over the end of that movie and then over the and into the end credits um that's a massive song that's a huge part of pop culture that was written for that specific movie and even though the rod stewart version that's featured in night shift is not the one we think of when we think of that tune burt Bacharach and uh i can't remember the lyricist who wrote that wrote it for that purpose so it's it's i think it's worth noting joel what do you think uh carol bear sager wrote yeah, the of uh, course the lyrics on they were the partnership um, at the time and yeah i believe um, they yeah. i could be wrong but i think they had a now nah, i shouldn't say if i believe that, that i'm but, wrong you know, i should shut up and we should just move on with the show well, real quick, uh, Up Where We Belong won the Academy Award. I the Tiger was nominated. It Might Be You from Tootsie, which is a movie we have yet to talk about. We'll get there. Mm-hmm. Um, if We Were in Love from Yes, Giorgio. Whatever the hell that uh, is. Yeah. And, Whatever the hell that song um, and movie are that we don't know or have never heard of, even at this point. Yep. Yep. And, uh, so I'm going to give another... that the old no, Giorgio. No. No, Giorgio. Music by John Williams. Uh, best friends, uh, a movie we have coming up. Uh, how do you keep the music playing? Those are the other. That's a good song. Not, not a lifelong hit. Mm-hmm. Yes. Giorgio must be a short film or something. If it's John Williams. Cause what the hell? I don't know. I don't know either. I don't know. Um, all right. But, <laughs> but, um, all right. So let's, let's hop into it. It is the year in film part three, 1982. Uh, and like I said, you know, well, I, I was going to say we're talking about prestige. A lot of the prestige films come come out, but I think we have a great film to kick off September, nineteen eighty two. This is a biggie. Uh, <laughs> I gotta admit, I have not seen it, but it does star the amazing Fred Ward. Who, no. I mean, Fred Ward, 
It's Fred Ward. Yeah, and yeah, of course, yeah. it's called, and it is the movie is Time Rider, the adventure of Lyle Swan. Presented by Michael Nesmith, directed by the great William Deere, featuring right. William Deere's girlfriend, whose name I can't remember, but who's super cute. Is that Belinda Bauer? No, no, it's just random control room lady who's like way, way too cute to be working in an 80s movie control room. <laughs> she stands out like a sore thumb when you watch the movie, trust me. William Deere's got great taste, and she's effective in it, but it's kind of funny. It's like, how many hot model chicks do we see staring at computers in these things? They didn't even give her glasses to disguise her. <laughs> <laughs> and she does a good job, so I'm not even knocking her. Good actor, right? But you, you just, you're just not... you're. You're way cast against Titan here, unfortunately. But that's the that's the only scene in this very modest movie where there's a ton of extras, essentially, where you could put a cameo in if you wanted. Um, it's a crazy scene about a cross-country motorcycle racer played by Fred Ward who, due to a government experiment, drives through a time vortex into the Old West and has to fight a bunch of cowboys and find his way, Joel, back to the future. <laughs> Yeah. they don't say that in it, but, but it's that kind of movie and it's 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 one of those video wall movies is what i call them and i'm determined to collect them all you know what i mean like they're uh whatever they are whether they're uh, garbage patch kids or whatever i want the whole collection when i stood in front of that sci-fi and fantasy section in the video store i want every single one of those movies i want space hunter adventures in the forbidden zone <laughs> i want your hunter from the future these uh i guess i'd seen space hunter but your hunter from the future which is a spoiler kind of it shouldn't be right there in the title uh you know i'd never i hadn't seen that till just a few years ago but when it came out on on in high def on blu-ray i was like I, i'm there day one i'm bringing that one home that's one of the ones that was on the wall right um, and no better, uh, like the posters way better than the movie, um, experience than the time writer poster, which to me is just absolutely iconic. It's a picture of a guy with a helmet on, on a, on a dirt bike riding into this Tron like electronic grid with this great eighties font. Um, and it just looks, it just looks like it's going to be the greatest movie ever. And then when you bring it home, it's actually not the greatest movie ever, but it's not half bad. That's a fun movie. This guy, he doesn't know where it is. You go from the desert, you know what I mean? Because it's not like some experiment where they were on a battleship or they were in a city in a bunker. This guy's just riding along in the dirt, and then he's still riding along in the dirt even when he travels back in time. And it's not until <laughs> he starts encountering the past slowly but surely that he starts to have any clue what might have happened. And it's not something a person would imagine. And Fred Ward, you know, passed on recently. And so we gave a little tribute to him, but he's just so good at this kind of role. This, this, cause he's really does have that sort of leading man, man of action charisma to him, but he also has this, he just really gets in touch in a, I think in a really brave way with the dumb ass inside us all. And all his characters, even his best, most famous ones, have a sense of that. When you think of the what the Grissoms go through in The Right Stuff, for example. Or, mm -hmm. you know, there's just this thing about him that... <laughs> he's just, I just don't know how to explain it. I don't want to call it a dumb ass because that sounds like it's mean. It's not. It's that... 
that weird bit of ego or that weird bit of person who makes the wrong decisions. Like he's so fun in this fish out of water role. Belinda Bauer is great. And Peter Coyote is hamming it up as the bad guy, the leader of this, of this, uh, gold mine running gang of outlaws or whatever. <laughs> who really wants to get his hands on that motorcycle because he thinks with that he can the electric horse or whatever they call it because he thinks they can with that he can rule the world he doesn't right. realize it's going to run out of gas pretty soon and just be totally worthless right and then there's it's cross cut with the future scientists trying to realizing what happened and trying to get him back and there's a great cowboys on horses versus uh helicopter battle at the end i mean it's 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 a high concept idea that you could do on a low budget. It's a it's a great uh, double feature with any of these cheesy movies that we talked about from this year. This would be a great lead in to Beastmaster, for example. I think you got <laughs> I yes. think you got to clean up with Beastmaster. That's a solid, I think that's, yeah. But I think this is a fantastic lead into that. It's be great to see these at the drive-in. Joel must have a drive-in story this episode because he promised one way back in episode one, and we haven't gotten it yet. Is that coming? Oh, I could have. Well, I, was, I guess I was waiting to say it at ET. Uh, yeah, nope. I mean, it was. I, it should have been last episode, but we are we are so gushing over ET. Nope. Um, yeah, I, I the, my drive-in movie story is it was just going to see a drive-in movie. Uh, my folks took my brother and I to it. We were in the back seat. Uh, they were in the front seat, and we watched in our Buick. I know we were in our Buick. I don't remember what kind of Buick. But we watched E.T. followed by Conan the Barbarian. Ah. Uh, that And that, um, I felt, was quite the double feature. It was all these families and then... It's not bad. The I mean, E.T. the headliner and then followed by Conan, the movie that had been out for a while. Yeah, Makes I think the, the theory being that the kids would either fall asleep or they would leave. Um, but not my brother and I. We're like, we we must see Conan, and uh, my mother was none too happy that we. And they kept saying, "You you boys just go to sleep. You boys, you boys go to sleep." And we're like, kind of trying to look between the seats and uh, to watch Conan. Nice. Um, my yeah. that's mismatched aspect ratios. That's dangerous when you go to the drive-in. I my favorite was Total Recall and Bird on a Wire, and they didn't change lenses for Bird on a Wire, so all the people's faces were like really <laughs> long and alien faces. <laughs> and just, nobody stopped it. I mean, once you start it, and those old reels theaters out there, they're like, oh, we're not stopping this. Yeah. Apparently, nope. nobody complained. They didn't mind seeing Goldie Hawn's face all stretched. <laughs> um all right so next up because shockingly shockingly total recalls the spherical movie same as et and bird on a wire and conan are anamorphic they're they're widescreen films so mm. if you put play them with the wrong lens you get it fits the whole screen which i'm sure is why they thought nothing was wrong but it's just very clear like cars are not that tall and faces are not that long and weird mm -hmm. um here next up is a movie that is uh one of the cinematic treasures of canada um, it is, it is called yep yeah that's what i mean yeah. uh it is called the gray fox starring richard farnsworth uh richard farnsworth plays an old bank robber slash train robber from the old west 
who has been locked up in prison so long that the whole world has changed. Like, she, it's basically the movie starts with him getting out of this long prison term and coming out into the world where there are there haven't been bank robbers or train robbers for decades. Like, that's just something... The Old West is gone. You are now basically mm-hmm. in the modern world. But if you like old-timey stories, old... Uh, it's not a Western, but old wilderness stories or especially if you love old trains man this is the movie for you it's got it, it's shot in western canada and it's just gorgeous and farnsworth it's the first ever leading role of his he was a stunt person in old westerns who they started giving lines to and by the time his life was over he was being nominated for oscars for and carrying films on his own his his story really is like the cinematic American dream to me, to some degree. Mm-hmm. And he says so much understated integrity in this role. And I, it's a gorgeous film, and it's a tiny little film. I mean, Lyle Swan, same thing. B-movies, September, summer's over, back to school. The stuff that they're leaking out, or in the case of these films, that they're slow rolling out. Um, it are for niche audiences or things that they are proud of but don't even expect to make money really uh and of course it didn't and as a result it's not really considered much of anything but it does have joel's right it's the canadians are very proud of it because it's very beautiful philip borsos directed it and it's just a really neat period movie you know it it it, Mm -hmm. it's more sophisticated and more adult than like a, a disney movie but it has that sort of old-timey, old-fashioned feel to it, which I dig more and more as I get older. They're the movies I really like to see. I hope that uh, the the film we glossed over the most from last episode, I hope the Tex gets a Blu-ray release so I can bring it home and cherish it, because even though I haven't seen mm-hmm. it, I, I just get the sense of what it is and, and am excited to see it. It's one of three Matt Dillon, S.E. Hinton books. Outsiders is another one. And yep. I think Rumblefish is the third. So, so how bad can it be? Those are all good, right? Um, Sorry to go back well, to that, but no, no, it, it segues nicely into uh, to the third movie uh, from uh, September, and then we're actually done with September. Yeah, not much in yeah, September. I told along. you, I told you when we were back in March. September really was back to school. Nobody was going to mm-hmm. see the films, and, and the studios didn't release anything. They just let the late so. And what did we have? We had Officer and a Gentleman, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. These things are still playing in the cinemas. E.T. is still playing Mm -hmm. in more than half the cinemas in the world at this point. So so they didn't need to release anything here, especially if it wasn't going to get seen by anybody. Not surprising. But you know what you could go see? You could go see the movie, uh, uh, the movie of the concert album, a uh, concept album, the movie of the concept album, The Wall yeah. by Pink Floyd. Because not a con- concert of any kind, really. The yeah, band's sorry, not even really. Yeah, concept the band's not even in the album. movie, really. Um, I don't want to say completely not in the movie, but it's not a movie of a band doing their album. It's yeah. it's very much, uh, you know, The Wall by Pink Floyd is a very sort of the last album of the 70s, very trippy uh, sort of drug-induced fever dream of an album, and the film very much is is 
a bunch of weird sort of trippy fever dream nightmarish images set to the music it really doesn't tell much of a narrative story but of course the wall the album doesn't tell much of a narrative story and if it had it would have been it would have been dismissed as cheap musical theater you know rock and roll concept albums work best the less narrative they have typically mm -hmm. if they're wrapped up in a theme or an idea if they're metaphors for other things in life as opposed to now Johnny does this now he does that now he wins the big game when you listen to rock albums that try and tell a story uh, they they as they could it can produce good music but they tend to be stupid and right. um the wall isn't stupid it's a really really good album but this is three years later um alan parker directed this we obviously we love him i just no alan parker movie i don't like but if i have a least favorite it might be this one because it's just mm -hmm. it's just uh, it it's it's what music videos did during this era. You know, we all talk about how great they are when we talk about the great ones. When you talk about Take On Me, I mean, what a great video. That video is great. When you hear that song on the radio, it's cool that you think of the video. But the vast majority of videos ruin the songs. They're cheaper and stupider than the songs. They, they're cornier. They bring the music down to a corny what you can achieve in a weekend with a cheap camera. You know... And I'm not talking about Hungry Like the Wolf. I'm talking about, like, everything else. Like, really, the vast mm -hmm. majority of music videos aren't good filmmaking, per se. Um, and that, to me, that's what The Wall is. Even though The Wall is good filmmaking, I, I don't get into it because it... The Wall, the concept album, the double album, you know, Pink Floyd, it's kind of the... They made another album, and then they made a few more reunion albums where they weren't whole... But to me, The Wall is the last Pink Floyd album. It's the last great Pink Floyd album. It's just great stuff on it. And when you put your headphones on or you turn the lights off and you just listen to that and let it happen to you, it's your own thing. You know, you it's you and the music. And you that can take you anywhere. When you're seeing somebody else's imagination, and it, it's an imaginative film, but trying mm -hmm. to be translated and what can be accomplished on film, on a budget, on a timeline, and you just, that vision, that imagination just gets compromised to the point that it doesn't support the music very much, anywhere near as much as your own imagination can, and therefore it's sort of a detriment to the music, it doesn't serve it very well. And that's, I think, the Wall's ultimate proof of that, because it's actually a good movie. Maybe people out there love it, but I just feel like, you you lived with the wall for three years before this came out. I mean, what was it mm -hmm. to you? Was it this? Was it really this? I don't probably wasn't. Right. So, it, and now is it? Can you get the meat grinder out of your mind? I mean, can you divorce yourself from it once you've seen it? Maybe. Maybe you can't. And if you can't, it's kind of a tragedy. So it just I don't know. It just shows you it's hard. It's, making a movie out of an album is hard. Yeah. And The Wall yeah. is as good a uh, album to inspire a movie as there is, and it's still hard. So that's that's my take on that. I don't know. You like The Wall, Joel? You've surely no. seen that at least. I've seen know. it, yeah. I don't really care for it. I'm, but I've never been a really big Pink Floyd fan. So so that um, doesn't help to begin with. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, I mean, I've seen it because it's a cultural touchstone. I mean, it's, it's something that, um, yeah, that you just you sort of just got to experience it. And I did. 
Try. Uh, I, normally, I would say the opposite, but try and not see the wall with somebody who really loves it. <laughs> just, sure. It's kind of like Joel and his kid. You'll just make them really sad. There's mm-hmm. no need to do that. Let them have it. It's cool. Right. Um, all right. Next. Next up, we've, we're into October now. Now, uh, and um, this first movie we're going to talk about here is was maybe the movie that appeared most on the list when we asked, you know, when we were talking about when we doing this show and a lot of our uh, listeners um, and subscribers and followers on the Facebook page, the movie show with Joel and Ryan Facebook page. Um, they, this, they, when they were commenting on their movies of 1982, this one might've been the one that came up the most of uh, movies that people were excited for um, in that year. Wanted to make sure um, that we didn't leave out. Yeah, and of course we ain't going to leave it out because it's my favorite year. Directed by Richard Benjamin, starring Peter O'Toole, Mark Lynn Baker. Oh, so good. So much fun. Uh, directed by Richard Benjamin, the actor, right? I mean, that, yeah. and, and Richard Benjamin, as a former actor, is such a good and assured storyteller. He, the kinds of movies he wanted to make and the kinds of stories he wanted to tell were a little out of off the beaten path. Now this film doesn't feel like it's unconventional or experimental or anything, it, it, but it, it does feel like a couple of these things we've talked about along the way where it feels like it, it is sort of a throwback to a different time. It's a period piece as it is, but it's this loving throwback to the, to the sort of whiz kid, um, TV writer, um, you know, there's a character here who sort of stands for Neil Simon. There's a character that stands for Carl Reiner. There, there. It's that group of people that that East Coast comedians yeah. who 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 wrote. You know, the writers, really, the comic writers, which were television in general, but certainly television in the early years of television was. Um, yeah. just running in front of a freight train. If you didn't keep writing, didn't keep filming, didn't keep making anything, the train ran you over. You ran out of time, you got run over. You you just had to be providing content, content, content all the time. And you just had to do it. And these guys had that zany, comedic energy. And it's fantastic. Peter O'Toole in an Oscar-nominated role. His He went on and on for a long time, and he gave some good performance. But in, in my opinion, his last great role... Uh, plays this uh, very much Errol Flynn-like character who is making this transition to television in, as an older actor and all the circus that came with the making of the behind-the-scenes of that. And it's it's such a fun comedy full of such cool characters, and O'Toole is totally invested in it. O- Peter O'Toole I'm really, really hard on because he's so theatrical. He's such a demonstrative actor. I'm always really tough on Michael York for that, too. There's certain actors that just, it's like, good Lord, man. Mm-hmm. I know you're playing to the 50th row, but the screen is this big, you know, where you see your face. Take it down a bit, please. And Peter's never been one to do that, honestly. He can do it, which is frustrating because he just doesn't do it when left to his vices. But it's such a great match, isn't it? This the like, Joel, you're a pretty big Errol Flynn fan for yeah. of the two of us. And I'm 
I'm coming to it slowly, but I'm becoming a pretty big Errol Flynn fan, actually, here way, way, way after the fact. And that's such a great marriage for what Peter was at this time in this world. And uh, my favorite year, I didn't see it in 82. I didn't see it in 92. I saw it just a couple years ago when it finally came out on Blu-ray. So hmm. I haven't been living with it all this time. Um, and I think Mark Lynn Baker's always been really, really good. I think people who only know him from Perfect Strangers it will be this will be revelatory for them because he's yeah. it's not O'Toole. It's really he that's the main character in the thing. Um, and it's it's such a good-hearted. It's just a really, really good movie. Really, really good yeah. film from this era. This this one was a movie that. Um... Again, uh, my f- we we rented on VHS, rented from the video store. Uh, my dad, I, I, it was one that you know my brother and I certainly didn't didn't choose, um, but my dad sort of said, "Oh, hey, this is you know he maybe because you're just kind of reading it and it's you know and it's like oh he's a matinee idol like swashbuckler guy and we're like oh swashbuckler because we loved you know Errol Flynn and Robin Hood and all you know I, the, the, those movies." Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And um, and and so we rented it, and uh, yeah, and it's one of those movies that we ended up renting. Like, if we were at the video store and just wanted something to watch, but didn't like nothing was jumping out at us. Uh, okay, let's get my favorite year again, and and we watch, and we would watch that once or twice before we would have have to return it. And it was, it was just, and it was just one of these movies that it was something that we as a whole family would could watch together. And all enjoy, um, and yeah. So it's and then when it when we finally got cable and got HBO, uh, this was played a bunch on HBO. Another one of these movies, yep. and we watch, we just watch it all the time. I'm envious, of you guys. I wish it's the kind of movie when you when you watch it, it you wish you'd have had that kind of experience yeah. with it. You know what I mean? Truly, yeah. I mm-hmm. should have had this movie as part of my life this whole time, and yet. Hey, at least we found each other at this point. I'm happy for that. At least you found each other. Yep. And I'm happy for uh, understanding because I probably like Racing with the Moon better because that's more my speed. But uh, Richard Benjamin's a really, really good filmmaker, and he pretty much made his best movie right out of the gate, which is a really, really impressive thing. And he continued to make good ones, but this is really good stuff. And, you know, and with not, it's full of people behind and in front of the camera who are not easy to juggle and he really feel it i don't know what kind of effort it was to bring it to life but it when you're watching it it feels effortless which is what it should feel like and that's neat that's really an accomplishment mm-hmm. of his um next up is a movie now when we grow so growing again growing up we had you know we would record videos and and, and every once in a while we would uh borrow a friend's vcr and then we would, you know, we would rent him if it was a movie that uh, for whatever reason, sometimes we just have two VCRs. We'd put them in there and we dub could could connect them and dub the movie over to have it. This was before they did like the magnetic tracking thing to really mess that up. Um, and uh, so we had a videotape that had uh, this movie that I'm about to mention, Porky's and Stripes, all on the same videotape. Um, and of those three movies, the one that probably got watched the most was First Blood, starring Sylvester Stallone. 
Wow, I forgot First Blood was coming up on the show, huh? Yeah. Yeah, Sylvester Stallone, Brian Dennehy, Richard Crenna. This is another. We talked about this in the. Uh, we we mentioned this in the uh, the. We talked about like the the war at home episode that we did. I guess about a month ago or so now. Um, We've talked about this one yeah. in a in a lot of uh, various different contexts because it's a very very uh, favorite film of ours Sylvester Stallone wrote directed starred in his most iconic character earlier in the year the third mm -hmm. Rocky film Rocky 3 was a huge hit this was more of a modest hit but it was a hit uh but he didn't direct this he didn't really write it although he he was a big enough star that he had a hand in manipulating it in the certain directions um mm -hmm. but he had a strong director a strong book that the screenplay was based on and a lot of other actors surrounded by him that, like Dennehy in particularly, I mean, Krenna's great in a sort of ringer role where he comes in at the end, but uh, but it's Dennehy that drives the film. He's so fantastic as this sheriff, um, who's not really an evil sheriff, but just who has enough of a stubborn streak that he refuses to back down and turns this thing yep. into this escalated bit of violence that was totally unnecessary it's also just fantastic use of the pacific northwest when this film in the town the bridge that he crosses the personality of the place but when he heads out into the wilderness man it's like it's like grizzly adams territory you are you feel like you're gone and away from everything mm -hmm. and so the vietnam sort of allegory even though it's a different kind of terrain and a different this and that it still has that you're lost in the jungle kind of feel to it and when when the elements become the great equalizer in the action, man, you're one man. It makes it believable that the one man show can take over and really uh, take his pursuers down. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of Sylvester's best acting roles. That uh, the helicopter stuff, the waterfall or whatever, the motorcycle chase, the uh, the real life stunt based action in it is outstanding. We said before the. Yeah, the film ends with him blowing a bunch of stuff up and everything, but it, it mostly ends with a nervous breakdown and our hero mm -hmm. giving a three-page monologue about how he can't connect with his own life and doesn't believe that he will ever be able to. And that's a crazy place for a movie like this to end. Yeah. It's a crazy place for it to end. And and yet that part of it, that's why Vietnam vets are drawn to this film, because it has that at the core of it. And 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 that's what brings it all that sort of real power outside of all the things that all the mercenary things that are good about it. That that heart, the beating heart of the thing is that. Mm -hmm. and it's it, it's it's so good. And I just I I weep. For the Rambo character because he's so yeah. bad and is part of so many crap movies. And when you look back at this, this or origin story, if you will, or this first film, it's its own thing. You know, it, it, it doesn't thing. have Rambo I, yep. in the title. And if it doesn't, it's worth checking out. And this film, that's not to say the Rambo movies aren't diverting enough, but they're just, they just, it, you really do get what the difference between Hollywood was when they were developing films in 1981 and 82 and when they were developing them in 85 and 86. And the difference, it's not that 85 movies suck so bad, but the difference is profound 
it's profound yeah. what what the what they were trying to feed us and what they were trying to give us more of. First Blood challenges you as a viewer, and I just I I adore that about it. And I I it's not gonna be for everybody. It's still sort of a cheap action exploitation film from 1982, so it's yeah. not the best date movie or anything. But there's just a it's hard for me to imagine any audience member not being carried away by it even 40 years later because it's so much better story than you probably think going in if you've missed it to right. date. And it made such a strong impression on those of us who saw it when we were kids. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things that Rambo probably could have used in that North Northwest Pacific uh, town is Q the winged serpent. Um, which also was released the, the next week in 1982. My, my transition game, my transition game is on today. Yeah, except you, you skipped over a chance to say winged serpent, which is really what oh, you should have said. winged, yeah. So if I have Cue any criticism, winged. right, the, the old English winged is yep. certainly appropriate in this case. Um, cue the winged serpent. Why is this here? This is really a movie we could have left <laughs> off the list. But again, well, what one reason? It's on the, the sci-fi and fantasy wall, even though it is neither sci-fi nor fantasy. Right. Not exactly horror though either. It's it's hard to pin down what it is as part of the joy of it. Um, it's the story of an ancient. Is it Egyptian? What's Quetzalcoatl? Aztec. Aztec. An ancient Aztec dragon like eagle thing that has somehow come to life in modern-day Manhattan and is killing construction workers and sunbathers and all kinds of unfortunate rooftop-related victims. And the two cops, played by a shit-you-not, David Carradine and Richard Roundtree. <laughs> yep. And what's even better is they're not the main characters in the story. The hotshot cops, and they couldn't be better. They couldn't have got two better guys to star in a movie like this who would absolutely hold down the fort. Larry Cohen wrote and directed this, and he's a terrible writer and director, but he, he's flirted with goodness a couple of times, once with It's Alive, and I think most profoundly with this film, Cue the Winged Serpent, because the social commentary going on in here elevates the cheap, cheap, cheap cheap b material and it elevates the sort of weird stop motion old school stop motion uh mm -hmm. monster and that all rests with the great michael moriarty and if you've never seen michael moriarty in something though these those two movies the larry cohen films it's alive and this certainly a great place to start uh if you only know him from law and order you don't know him at all he plays this cheap right. grifter who's down on his luck, can't get a job, he's got all those early Reagan-era economic blues, and he, through just dumb luck, stumbles across the lair of this thing, and he holds the entire city hostage for money before he will tell them where it is. Because this is his, <laughs> this is his shot, as he explains to his girlfriend, who's played, is Candy Clark, she's a really good actor, I believe it's Candy Clark. Yep, Candy um, Clark. Yeah, Candy Clark from At Close Range and uh, most famously, I guess, from American Graffiti, but she's done all kinds of great stuff. Uh, yeah. They have this, she, she's his conscience and she, what are you doing? It's killing people. And he's like, hey, like it or not, I mean, I get it. 
but this is it. I mean, now this is my chance. I'm not going to get some other, you know, there's not going to be some other golden opportunity for me to make good ever in my mm-hmm. life other than this. This is my chance to, to make something happen. And and then the whole end of the movie is just bizarre, crazy circus. But, <laughs> but it's, it's so much smarter than what it is. I guess that's why I like it. And yet it's just as stupid as you would hope. So for lovers of cheap B monster movies, we talked about a bunch mm. recently. And for lovers of rather clever, you know what I mean? Like, uh allegories for other things comments on society and stuff this chud there were a handful of them where they really were john sales wrote a couple that we talked about a few weeks ago they really were more than what they were and and q gets it's not Mm -hmm. a great movie it really isn't it's bad movie night movie but it's a great bad movie just fantastically well done bad film um all right uh next up is a movie series that i do not like never liked but they're very much i mean to me this is very much uh kind of what like you talked about movie the movies of 85 86 i think this is this is one of the this is a direct began the spawning of the of the mid 80s of the one man yeah the the one man i can take it all yeah, as uh, Death Wish two, I mean Death Wish was uh, you know started, but it's that it's that vigilante one man warrior. I can you know I'm pulling up my bootstraps and I'm gonna get all those people who yeah. have done me wrong. This is the beginning of the October Horror Fest, and we yeah we got time this because we this turned into three episodes instead of one. But we're not going to dwell on any of these because they are all terrible. And uh, uh, more so, they're all distasteful in a way that I don't like either. Mm -hmm. Death Wish, although it cast an ass-kicking action star in the role of an everyman who arms himself and gets revenge on the society for his own losses. That's a powerful story that could have been good with a different actor. And it's also a good turn by an actor doing something different, but his own Charles Bronson, I'm talking about right now, his own persona turns on him in that movie and turns it, but it's, it keeps from turning into this. (laughs) This is the, this is where it goes bad. This is where the violence gets upped. This is where the, there's no meaning behind any of this, except just some, badass guy out there being a vigilante and the cheap thrills that come from it. So the death wish series is terrible and Mm -hmm. it's, that's why it's here at the start because it's not a horror movie, but it's here at the start of all the horror sequels because it fits with them in that it's just, it's it's something worked. Even if the movie wasn't good, something worked in the first one that made them make more and as they made more, they just diminished the meaning of it all to the point that it was just, it's just cheap thrills for people who want cheap thrills. And mm-hmm. that sort of, I don't know, that sort of cheap, you know, the more you cheapen violence, the more you truly just, you truly just lose sight of the angels of the better storytelling. You just have taken yourself out of that and any potential for that. And that series definitely does, Joel. I'm not a fan of Death with the Year, but 
Death Wish 2 uh, was not competing for the same audience as E.T., and it made bank. It made almost as much money as the first one, which is really unusual for sequels. So yeah. it, 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 it's, it's a movie we easily could have skipped, and yet it's, it was a significant earner for, a, for Paramount, a pretty big studio mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, we have a series of numbered films here <clears throat> uh, coming up, and uh, we're gonna. Next one is Friday the Thirteenth Part Three. It, right, what, can read the synopsis of Friday the Thirteenth Part Three for me, will you? Do you have it up? Yeah, Jason Voorhees stalks a group of friends who arrive to spend the weekend at camp near Crystal Lake. That's it. That's it. Thanks for differentiating that from the other films synopsis. Yep. Um. Yep. Is that really it? That's all that happens in it? Pretty much. Well, Jason Voorhees, having barely survived a wound to his shoulder from his own machete, is back to revenge on all that visit his woods. Barely survived. Isn't he undead? Didn't he spend a decade like under the water or whatever? What do you mean barely survived? These movies are so stupid. Yeah, I've said it before and I'll say it again. There are no good Friday the 13th movies. Even people talk about the first one like it's good. It isn't. It wasn't good then. It did have that killer inspired by Carrie, I suspect, sort of non-sequitur ending. That was pretty impressive, I have to say, because it it leaves you, it doesn't leave you at peace at all. That ending scares the shit out of you, which is great. That's what a horror movie is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it sets up this series of films that just goes on and is still going on that are all awful. And they are all awful. I'm sorry. They're bad. And this one's as nope, bad as good. any of them. Um, this one is only notable because uh, this is the first time he gets a hockey mask. Oh, well, there you go. Great. Cool. Well done, Jason. I guess we'll move um, on from there. You're good. You're good at accessorizing. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, next up is Amityville 2, The Possession. Uh, does that have a... a... Dysfunctional family moves into a new house, which proves to be satanic, resulting in the demonic possession of their teenage son. Mm, Well, okay, at least it's the teenage son this time. That's sort of different. Teenagers Mm -hmm. are scary to adults, so I can see why that might be the stuff of nightmares. But again, Amityville, made by Stuart Rosenberg, and and based on a true story, based on a, a true based on the incredible true story yeah, based on the incredible yeah. true fraudulent story told story, by these people yeah. who lived in this house um it isn't great on its own but it is done with a sure artistic hand james brolin margot kidder are good in it rod steiger and it's directed by a guy who who doesn't intend to make some piece of fluffy garbage he tries to take on the story there that he has in hand in the best way possible. And it was a big hit. So regardless of whether it was quality at all, it was a big hit. And now it's, since it was a big hit, it's got to have an Amity 2 and an Amity 3 and an Amity 4 and an Amity the remake and an Amity mm-hmm. the reboot. And it's just gone to diminishing returns. And I Amityville 2 I've seen. But I didn't remember much about it. I don't remember the teenager being the problem. So obviously I can't even... It didn't make much of an impression. But these right. films, they all—they didn't all come out in October here. We saved all these for a clump so that we could blow through them. Back when we thought this was only going to be one episode, we needed to just read them out loud, admit they existed, 
note that they were hit films of 1982 because they were um and then just move on so now here i am in a show where i actually have time to talk about these and i don't want to i don't want to talk about them they're they suck they suck i didn't like them then and i didn't know why and i like i like them less now and i know why and i still don't want to tell you why because you don't want to hear me preach about all your favorite slasher movies and i don't want to preach about it so f it um sadly the next movie that we have is not called tentacles to the tentacle um but it is uh from um (laughs) the episode that we were talking about on jaws ripoffs uh but we have piranha 2 the spawning well okay piranha 2 wasn't a hit wasn't anything nobody Mm -hmm. saw it it maybe played on saturday afternoon tv eventually a few years ago but this film was seen by nobody and experienced by no one and it was a Mm -hmm. a, it was a weird sequel to a ripoff of another movie so it's so far its conception is so far from artistic integrity to begin with the reason we mention it at all is it did come out around this time back in august i believe actually um it is a sequelized horror film and it was the first ever film directed by mega super blockbuster extraordinaire james cameron and because it's his first film but it isn't good but because it's his first film and the story of it getting taken from him and i gotta say the idea of the flying piranhas Piranhas that that just when you think you've escaped them on the beach just come flying out of the water at your face. It's a terrifying idea, and it's actually fairly Mm -hmm. well realized in terms of the movie magic that they had at their disposal at the day. The problem is the rest of the movie just doesn't really work well. It it and it has that same problem. It's funny that you mentioned tentacles because it has that same made in even though it was made by an American or Canadian director, sorry, James. Mm Mm-hmm. Canadian director. He's kind of American-ish now. I think he's an American citizen now. I'm quite certain he is. But he's from Canada. Um, The fact that it was made by him, it doesn't change the fact that it's this weird, disconnected from reality sort of set in America, but takes place in it or is shot in Italy sort of film. It feels like one of those cheap Italian ripoff films. So Someday... Um, it lacks the harpsichord accents that might have made it a classic. Correct. Um, someday we'll do James Cameron top ten or whatever. It won't be on that, but won't be on that. But but we'll mention it again. Yeah, we'll mention it again because it's just part of the lore. We mentioned it in the Terminator episode, mm-hmm. and this is probably the most I'll ever talk about it. It's not worth your time unless you are a true purveyor of crap yeah, cinema. If you, from, you know. Um, yeah, if you are a piranha completist or some sort or, of James Cameron super fan, you really do yeah. need to at least check it out so you can say you've seen it. Right. That, um, that's right, why I've up, seen it or I never would have seen it. Yeah. Next up is the curious uh curious story of Halloween 3 season of the witch. This of this group <clears throat> of films is actually it's by far the best movie on this mm-hmm. on this little sequelized list. Halloween was a really, really good horror movie. Best ever slasher movie, maybe, if you don't count Texas Chainsaw Massacre as a slasher movie. Um, Which it's not a conventional one, the way Halloween, I think, became. 
But Halloween, mm -hmm. really, really good. John Carpenter, really excellent use of what's scary about this kind of storytelling and using all the cinematic tools and every inch of the, the frame to frighten you. It, there's very few movies that are as good as that, as it. So Halloween, unlike Friday the 13th, that horrible, awful, terrible series at least started with a really, really great Stone Cold classic of a movie. Mm -hmm. and it, so it deserves a little credit for that. And then you've got Halloween 2, which... As far as let's do the same thing again, sequels, not that bad. Pretty good right. slasher movie sequel. Not great, but pretty mm -hmm. good. They get the gang back together again. They go through some of the similar beats. They try some of the similar things. The filmmaking isn't as self-assured, and it's not as good a movie at all. But I, I get it. You did the best you could. Uh, Jaws 2, you know, we talked about those Let's Do It Again movies. This is fits yeah, in yeah. with that. It's a pretty decent one. And then very wisely, although it didn't work, it's, it's a shame that it mm -hmm. didn't, but very wisely, Carpenter, who kind of had the rights to the Halloween films because the first one was put out by nobody, it was just barely distributed it, until it caught fire. Um, he had control over this series, and it's very rare that a creator gets control over their own thing. Sylvester Stallone, in his old age, has been railing against the windmills recently for not having any financial control over the Rocky series. That's sad that he doesn't. That was all created by him in his mind. You know, he deserves his, his cut of that, or a bigger cut than he's getting anyway. Even for a rich yeah. guy, I'll say that's probably true. Um... For Carpenter, he decided, look, I don't want to keep doing this stupid Michael Myers movies. They're going to just get stupider and stupider, huh? How's that for mm -hmm. for calling it on the nuts? Um, but we could let's make try something different. Let's make basically we can keep making Halloween movies. Halloween is ripe for horror movie ideas. We just all we need is the ideas, and how so they their intention was to continue the Halloween series as an anthology mm -hmm. series where each new thing would be its own thing and the only movie that survived that really smart idea is halloween three season season of the witch season of the witch um which is genuinely scary has a really terrifying and diabolically satanic idea at the heart of it um mm -hmm. and and works i mean it really works it's not as good as halloween but it's really good in its own right and i remember People my age really liked it at the time too, so it's it. I, I don't know if it didn't make a ton of money or what. Why they moved on or why they felt the need to bring Michael Myers back? Maybe it made less than Friday the Thirteenth Three, which is in every way worse. So, it's, you know, who right. knows? Who knows why they turned the clock back and made more lame Halloween movies with the with the central boogeyman? Maybe that's just what they felt they had to do, but. Season of the Witch is good. Halloween 3's, I mean, it if you have to watch any of these that we've talked about, that's the one. That's a really pretty good film. Um I don't love it cuz I really didn't like horror movies at this time, but I I admire it greatly. I love the concept of it and I still every Halloween I still sing the effing song, so it, <laughs> it sticks yep. in your head. <laughs> it sticks in your head. Um, all right, and finally, in our little horror batch here, we have Slumber Party Massacre. Oh, well, 
the first Slumber Party Massacre came out in 1982, but the reason it's part of this group is because it was the first of another terrible series of movies to come out that wasn't even good to begin with. But Slumber Party Massacre, it has a that has a cheap exploitative draw to it that mm-hmm. I think we can all understand what it is and and it's clever title. So credit where credit is due. It's also just here so you guys get it maybe it's sinking in. This is less than half the slasher movies that came out in 1982. Yeah. They just came out all the time. All of them. They were all made right around this time, essentially. So you you can't talk about this era in film without mentioning some of them. And that's a group of the most notable ones. Yeah. Uh, with, let's with go some on flying to... piranhas thrown in for good measure. Indeed, flying piranhas and uh, and some more weird masks. It's a neat idea, right? Um, it's a neat idea for an escalation of a monster. It's out there. It shouldn't work mm-hmm. on film, but it does. Those piranhas are scary. Well, to go back to last, they're like to fish to last with transparent episode. bat wings that just flap around your face. They act like bats. Bats are scary. They're so weird and random, and you know. So mm-hmm. get it. Well, to go back to last week's episode, uh, they are monsters. Um, you know, they do cause a ruckus, right. as Captain Holt would say. <laughs> um, it causes quite a ruckus. Uh, uh, yep. So he's not a monster. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That's so he funny. Does, he does cause quite a. I don't understand why everybody's so upset. He's a monster. Did you cry at the end of ET when ET dies? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what's her name she's that's rosa of, yeah. yeah that's one of the best uh one word line readings in all of sitcom history too mm-hmm. the whole sequence is so funny of course she i mean she'd be the one that would cry but the point is we all cried she's speaking for all of us and she only has right. one word with three letters to do it and she nails it <laughs> it does cause quite a commotion <laughs> is that what he says commotion I, I'm trying to. I'm trying to so find funny. it. I think it is commotion now. Um, it's funny. Uh, yeah. All right. So anyway. Um, do, 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 do. Do, 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 oh, I thought I would find it here. No, man. Move into November. We don't have. To all leave. right. So let's get into November. Uh, November starts us off um, with a lovely little film called "The Man from Snowy River." Oh, Man from Snowy River is great. Well, we talked about yeah. that before. We talked about that on the HBO show. So we're going to be let off the hook on a handful of these. Mm-hmm. Where we don't really have to dwell on them again. But Australian Miller, uh, Australian movie directed by George T. Miller, the other Australian George Miller director who didn't make the Mad Max movies or the Babe, the Pig movies. Um... And he made some pretty good movies, and this is probably his best. And it's about a kid who loves horses and who's down on his luck in the Australian outback, and he goes to work at a ranch, and he mm-hmm. finds the love of his life, and he becomes a man and all that great stuff. And it's got a really crazy uh, dual performance by Kirk Douglas playing uh, twins, playing a crusty old twin and yep. a slick sort of all dressed in black villain twin and i've said it before it seems crazy now 
But I didn't know they were twins. Like the first two times I watched Man from Snowy mm. River, I thought they were the same guy. Harrison and Spur. They couldn't be more different, but they're both Kirk Douglas, and he's he's a pretty specific kind of character in his own right. And I told you, it's I don't think it's all my fault. I was a kid. I was playing with Hot Wheels while I was watching it, so there was a distraction factor going on. Mm-hmm. And that movie does not do a good job of introducing those guys as twins. It needs a scene up front where you see them both interacting with each other so that you know it's the same guy playing two guys and it's okay for you to buy in. It needs Every movie that does this has that, but this one. So, George T. Miller, hey, I'm a big fan. I like Man from Snowy River, but go back. Watch the parent trap and see how it's done because you got to do that for it to work right. And you Don't didn't blame Miller do it. on your own. And you confused little Ryan and made him Don't look like a big him. idiot. Don't blame him for your own inadequacies, Ryan. What? You should have known. You should have known. Yeah. Right, because switching <laughs> facial hair dramatically between scenes doesn't make any sense. Right. But what do you want from me? Indeed. That's a true story. Uh, all right. A movie that could have gone in our last little bunch. We had a little interruption of Man from Snowy River, but now we're going to go uh, to George A. Romero. I say that if I say George A. Romero, I, George Romero, I sort of need to pause because somewhere in California, Michael is going, woohoo, and he doesn't know why. Um, Strangely, George I don't think Michael really listens to the show very much. No, I don't think he does unless he's on it. Uh, George Romero's Creep Show. Well, Michael got his, he got on the record for Creep Show back in the uh, the countdown, the Stephen King countdown episode. Mm-hmm. 20 best Stephen King adaptations. That is a really, really, really fun episode of the movie show with Joel and Ryan. It's two episodes, actually. If you even if you don't like Stephen King or you don't like horror movies or whatever, that's 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 four friends talking about movies in the most fun way with lots of plot twists and uh, twists and turns in its own right (laughs) outside of the movies. So we enjoyed that. So check that out. I'll only thing I'll say about Creepshow is one of the best horror anthology films of all time. Um, Not to mention that it really nails the comic book aesthetic mixed with horror that uh swamp thing aforementioned earlier in 82 film didn't quite have the resources to nail it really gets all that right i don't really love creep show because i don't really like i don't like horror morality plays which is what horror which is what pretty much all short fiction is but which all horror short fiction is why do you mm-hmm. deserve to get killed or tortured? And then you get killed or tortured. That's really all they are. And that's all Creepshow is, and so I don't really dig it. But but that's only because I'm prejudiced against that kind of storytelling. If you if I'm able to attempt to look at the thing objectively, um, it's a fantastically done film. Some great writing by King and a fantastic adaptation by Romero, who's really making a he didn't make many big studio films two or three and this is his best one and and i'm glad he got to do that and got some kudos and got some got some uh residuals that he wasn't getting for essentially inventing zombies at some point yep um 
I don't know what to make out of this next movie. I mean, I saw it, uh, and it's. Uh, I mean, I guess I remember laughing a little bit about it, uh, at it as a kid, but it's um. They call me Bruce. <laughs> um, Why is this here? Goofy... You know, the only reason this here. A couple of these. Can you see what I hear? You know what I mean. A couple of these are skippable. They're totally skippable, even though they came out in 1982. The only reason they're here is because. I've seen them. <laughs> like yeah. if I had something in my collection or if I've seen it or if I watched it a lot as a kid, I feel like when am I going to talk, when are we going to talk about, they call me Bruce, uh, a, a vehicle for Johnny Yoon, who's this uh, mm -hmm. Chinese comedian who resembles greatly actually uh, yeah, Bruce Lee. Yeah. Just, he's Korean just to clarify. Yoon is Korean. Yeah. Bruce Lee's not Korean, though. No, Bruce Lee isn't Korean. Johnny Yoon is so Korean. It's a, sorry. Okay, sorry. Yeah, sorry. No, it's important to get that distinction right. Uh, Johnny's most famous, probably, for being in the Cannonball Run. He's the he's the, he's the guy with the gadget car in that or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he's pretty fun in that, actually. But And he's really fun in this. This is such a cute movie. It's like, the, it's, it's, it's full of weird i'm sure joel finds it objectionable because of all the weird racial stereotypes that are in it but it's it's made by these people it, like it comes from a place of this race of people and the way they're misunderstood both in society and in entertainment so there's there is an extra layer of meaning to it that i find useful but it really is just a madcap comedy with a pretty good unsung comedian living this weird like life of Brian sort of life except when it comes to Bruce Lee and hero worshiping Bruce Lee and wanting to be Bruce Lee in this cheap sort of early 80s drug exploitation story um there's a great scene where he tries he watches Rocky on TV and he tries to do the same things Rocky did to beef himself up and train and his training montage is like really comic it's really quite brilliant but again that's where the movie shuts the f up and sort of just becomes its own little thing those parts are magic cuz a good comedian doing comic stuff is fun the it, the rest of it is rather distasteful though I'll agree with you I did not know I didn't realize the whole movie was about cocaine when I was watching it as a kid right I really, yeah I, I really I didn't had remember no, that I had no clue that's what it was about and yet that's what it's about so you know take it for what you yeah. want what did uh what did Rob say in our comment section there was a lot of cocaine going around in 1982 and a lot <laughs> yes, of these movies was. were the result of that so yeah. So maybe don't watch that as an eleven-year-old like I did these days. Mm -hmm. Probably not the best. Um, okay, another John, Johnny uh, another... Yoon, Johnny Yoon, though funny actor, really funny actor. Uh, right yeah, there. yeah. Uh, so we have um, the the next movie is another animated film. Uh, this came out uh, in November, so family film for the kind of getting early in for the holidays, maybe. Uh, but this is a Rankin and Bass animated film, and it's the last unicorn. And like all Rankin and Bass stuff, it's awful. It's such a stupid, stupid movie. I hate this movie. It's only here because some people really, really like it. Jimmy Webb, the great songwriter, wrote the songs for it. America, the classic 60s band, sing the songs from it. Uh, Alan Arkin does some voice work. Mia Farrow. Jeff Bridges, Mia Farrow, Angela Lansbury, Alan Arkin, Robert Mia, Klein, Christopher Mia, Lee. 
Mia Farrow plays. Uh, is she plays a? Is she a horse that becomes a woman? Uh, or a unicorn, unicorn that becomes unicorn she's a unicorn that becomes, that becomes yeah. a woman. She has a song in it. Now that I'm a woman, everything has changed. <laughs> and Mia Farrow's not. She's game, but she's not a great singer. You know, she, she's a big Mary Martin fan. You know, she did the remake of the Peter Pan in the eighties, mm-hmm. and but she's just not a. She's she can sing, but she's like. <laughs> like that girl from Frente can sing. It's more like she's exhaling and notes are kind of coming out is the sound that we're talking about. It's just weird, man. Rankin and Bass, they never, ever put down the weed, ever. They never put it down. Put it down. Think about what you're doing. You guys are so crazy. However, this, the animation's great. It really is good. I mean, it's a big budget animation, so it's not like their their TV specials at the time, which were kind of awful. Like their version right. of The Hobbit is really awful. Um, but you know, and these are the guys. If you don't know, these are the guys who made Frosty the Snowman, and I'm more famously Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. All that stop motion Christmas and holiday specials. Uh, the quality is more summed up. They they did the one where the was the night before Christmas, where it's the mice like on Christmas Eve trying to save Christmas mm-hmm. or whatever. They're just so high all the time. They're just so, you know, only only the Croft brothers smoked more weed that were making children's entertainment at this time. And this is such a weird weed-induced thing, <laughs> and it's so obvious that it is. And yet, for a change, um, the girls got into this in a way the guys didn't. The girls were into the unicorn. They identified with the lead character. Like, they sort of deserve... This movie's here because they kind of deserve their due because these movies weren't really aimed at them yep. so much. And this one, I think it's kind of by accident, but I think it is kind of. And I think it connected with them in a way that if you're a guy, you can't really fully appreciate. I certainly couldn't. So... I, uh... I was just watching an uh, an old episode of Mr. Show and uh, the Sid and Marty Croft takeoff thing where they did the altered state of drug choosets. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, uh, and so he goes to on. the weird land where all the people in the weird yeah. suits represent different drugs and stuff, and yep. their personalities yep. represent. Pot, I mean, yeah. it's hilarious. The pot brownies and, uh, and yeah, Doctor LS, Doctor LSD. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and what's the one? Yeah. <laughs> the one who's all freaking yeah. out. I can't remember what um, he is. Yeah, he's it's... he's like a blah. He's like a spilled, hardened soda mm-hmm. with a bunch of barbiturates stuck inside of it. I can't remember what his character <laughs> is, but it's so funny. You know, they were super uh... high, and it's that the reason that Bob and David sketch is so funny is because it's really really hard to make fun of Sid and Marty Croft because they. It, they make fun of themselves. It's there on the screen. Watch an episode of the Bugaloos sober. It's almost impossible. It's so mm-hmm. weird. This has this isn't as bad as all that. They knew they were working with a lot more money. They were working over a couple of years of animation, so they the, their weirdness got a little stale. That actually helps the last unicorn, but the last unicorn still. Still trippy, man. What's the what's the Red Bull or whatever the bad guy? So it's so weird and nightmarish and esoteric and not anything yeah, that would be um, in a movie of this kind. It's all so odd. 
Yeah, King, there's King ha King Haggard, uh, the skull. Uh, the skull is weird, yeah. man. That scene is so the weird. The skull, yeah, that's that's uh, Rene Abergenois. Of course, Abergenois. Yeah. Good job, um, dude. Um, <laughs> the altered state of Massachusetts. Um, just can't get into Last name. Unicorn. Just can't stuff. Yep. Can't do it. Uh, anyway, okay. Uh, so after the last unicorn, uh, we have, um, Meryl Streep coming out in 90 and 82 Roy Scheider. Is it Roy Scheider? Is it blue thunder? No, it is not. It is still of the night. Still of the night. It's Robert Benton. The guy who brought you Kramer versus Kramer trying mm -hmm. to do a Hitchcock like thriller. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I don't want to call it her a femme fatale, but uh, a guy getting in over his head into something that's wrapped up in a crime. I, I think if you're ever going to watch Still of the Night, I think me telling you the plot is would be terrible. So I'm not going to do that. The synopsis doesn't give much away, though, Joel. Read the synopsis. I think that'll help. The you, synopsis you get what kind of movie um, it is. Yeah, it's a Manhattan sign. Manhattan ugh, words. A Manhattan psychiatrist probes a patient's murder and falls for the victim's mysterious mistress. Um, rhetorically, Meryl Streep was once asked by some vacuous talk show host of some kind, "Have you ever done a bad movie?" And she said, well, there was this movie back in 1982 called Still the Night. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she's not super proud of it. But it's not a bad movie. The problem is Robert Benton isn't Alfred Hitchcock, you know. Brian De Palma could have been Alfred Hitchcock, but he just he's just such a crap storyteller that he couldn't be. Brilliant filmmaker, crap storyteller. Benton could have been a decent storyteller if he would have just told stories instead of tried to be some cinematic genius that he just flat out wasn't. And this movie's a director falling on his face trying to do Hitchcock and just not capable of pulling it off. But it's still uh, an adult thriller of that type, you know what I mean, where you bob and weave throughout the little plot twists and identity concealments and all that stuff. So it, it the script's not that bad, but the movie's pedestrian. If you really want to see a filmmaker like that try a story like this with Roy Scheider, go back <laughs> to 1980 and see the... Uh, fuck, I'm going to forget what it's called now. Jonathan Demme directed it. It's Roy Scheider and Janet, Janet Margolin, and they... Uh, takes place kind of at Niagara Falls. That's what the poster is very famously, but I can't remember what it's called. So mm. I guess that was terrible advice. Anyway, <laughs> try and find that one now, you Hitchcock yep. fans. Because they're not, the 80s aren't doing you any favors. You know, people talk about Dress to Kill and they talk about, um, what's the other horrible one that he did with, I always want to say Bill Maher because that guy looks just like Bill Maher, but it's not Bill Maher. It's just an actor who looked like him. Um, it's awful movie. The voyeurism one with Melanie Griffith. Like the, and, or oh, Wolfgang right. Peterson did Shattered. And they all trying to be Hitchcock, and they all are sucking at it. And yet people who like that kind of movie just think all these movies are great, and they're not. There aren't any great ones. 
even even the ones that we like, Dead Again, you know, it's got a lot of Hitchcock in it, but it's not that good. It it, it was, it, at least that one was hypnotic when you were sitting through it, but when you stop to think about it, you're like, what? Nah, no way, yeah. that movie. And they're all like that. And this one, this one doesn't even, I mean, it doesn't even have De Palma's camera moves and stuff like it. It's just pathetic. You tried, you failed, the game is over for you. You know, we've said that before, and that's <laughs> yep. that's that sort of that's what this is, is. Even Meryl Streep doesn't like it. Even Meryl Streep doesn't like it. And she's uh, in it. Right. Okay. You know what month we've reached, Ryan? Mm. We are into December. And Can December, we do it in a half an hour, you think? Of course. December, of course, means Oscar bait. But not all of these. Not all of these are Oscar bait. Some of them are just uh, holiday fun. Um, first up, though, we have uh, the story of Francis Farmer. Uh, Fra Francis Farmer's meteoric rise to fame in Hollywood and the tragic turn her life took when she was blacklisted. Jessica Lange is Francis. Francis. I've never seen Francis, and I'm really mad because it's not easy to see. And I would like to watch it because it sounds like my kind of movie. It, it, mm -hmm. it, 82 was the big comeback year for Jessica Lange. It took a long time. From 1976 when she starred in King Kong as this total 70s airhead. Um, with the heart of gold, but airhead nonetheless. And it, she's so good in King Kong that people thought that that's what she was. And it just took forever for, despite her intense beauty and her talent, it took a while for her to battle back into the Hollywood mainstream. And it, it was, for, for insiders, Francis wasn't a big hit. It wasn't didn't even have a big wide release. But when people saw it, who knew something about acting and storytelling, they said, wow, here, this, she's somebody and she's gorgeous. You know what I mean? Like, that's we can use that. Hollywood can you put that to work and they and they did and then of course we already kind of dropped the let the cat out of the bag on what the next movie is that she actually won the best supporting actress Oscar for mm -hmm. um but this month had these two films and and the I really am interested in McCarthyism and I'm interested sort of in that a little bit in old Hollywood and I would like to know about this person and I want to see this film and I just have never seen it because it's not it's in that weird zone where at the time it had a little bit of a life of its own, but it's not a classic really. So mm -hmm. it's not, it's just not been adopted or propped up as anything throughout the years. It's been hard to track down and see. Is it on Amazon? Are you about to tell me? It is on Amazon. That is where you well, can find it. At least it's there. Mm -hmm. Does it say HD next to it? Uh, it, um, let's see. Yes. All right. Rent and HD. I, I've got some Amazon points stored up, so I'm going to go watch that on Amazon. I might watch it right after the show goes down because I've always wanted to see Francis, and I knew I'd be talking about it without having seen it here, so I'm sorry for that, but at least we mentioned it. Who directed it? Well, uh, it is directed by Graham Clifford. So not nobody, but not a big somebody mm -hmm. either. Yeah, okay, interesting. Um, all right, next up is uh, we're bringing the funny. Here it comes. Ooh. Bringing the funny with Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte. And 48 hours. 
See, it's kind of, you know, when you get done with the summer and you think it's over and you get first blood and you get 48 hours and like they keep, the movies keep rolling out. Um, mm -hmm. 48 hours, I'm not a huge fan of 48 hours, actually. I think it's a little gruff and it's kind of a little ugly for my taste, but it's a gruff, ugly crime thriller. And of course, the magic ingredient is... It, casting Eddie Murphy mm -hmm. out of Saturday Night Live with a doesn't-say-much-grizzled-cop character in Nick Nolte, who nevertheless, Nolte plays... He plays a grizzled-cop character, but he doesn't play some... Like, his girlfriend's like a total, like, hippie in it who's very high-minded about everything. Like, he's an intellectual mm -hmm. that can hold his own with that kind of character. So the character's interesting, you know, I, it, it, but... He still doesn't say much, and because he doesn't, Eddie just gets to play, just gets to goof off and play and react to everything, like in the best team-up, like Richard Pryor tradition. He's so out of this world entertaining in this. You know, it's, mm -hmm. I mean, he was so great on SNL for the two years or whatever that he was on it, but this is just like... He'll never not be a movie star now. I mean, you could just feel it when you're watching yeah. it. You hear yeah. him before you see him in the movie, you iconically in, in prison singing uh, The Police's Roxanne. And it's hilarious. And and every minute you spend with him is really fun. So it just it keeps this rather pedestrian, I think, not a very good crime story afloat. It's it's made what it is by and it'd still be an okay movie, you know without him it but it would be one of those walter hill movies that when we do a walter hill episode we'll talk about all yeah. of them and they're good but they're not great um this one transcends that it might actually be great it might be one of the best of kind of these you call it a buddy cop movie even though it's a cop and a criminal but that is what it is right. it's a it's a buddy buddy cop movie where they, mm -hmm. they solve the case and they track down the bad guys and they do it as a team and you want them to team up again, even though you know it won't be as good the second time. And they do. And it isn't. And it's it still isn't. OK yeah. because <laughs> because it, well, there's the, these characters are that cool that you want to spend yeah. more time with them. That's the biggest compliment you can give to a film like this. Yep. Um, but it's it's right, ugly. Next. There's lots of ugly shootouts and ugly yeah. collateral damage and women. I think even the even the smart woman who I just mentioned, they're, they're this film doesn't have much respect for them at all. And you really feel that when you're watching it. It's all city hookers and mm -hmm. prostitutes and the cops are all shrills and the girlfriends all just kind of this harpy and it's just like it's a man movie, you know. And yep. For that, I lament it because there's no reason one of these female characters couldn't have been decent. Right. Uh, next up is uh, the hilarious story of the life of a lawyer who became the fame leader of the Indian revolts against the British rule through the philosophy of nonviolent protest. What up, what up, what up? <laughs> no, it's uh, of course the three-hour masterpiece, Richard Attenborough's Gandhi. Mm, Gandhi, holy cow! Where do you even start? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, it, we got to spend a little time picture. on Gandhi because I don't. We're gonna do films of Richard Attenborough, probably not. We've already talked about Cry Freedom and stuff and Bridge Too Far, so I don't. It's not like it's gonna. Not like he's going to have his own mm -hmm. show. And this is, of course, is, as a filmmaker, it's his absolute crowning achievement. 
The thing that's kind of amazing about Richard Attenborough is he told these old school stories, you know, young Churchill. and As I said, Cry Freedom, these huge socioeconomic things. This film definitely, as much as any, the story of the pacifists leader of, as Joel said, the Indians against the it, the British empirical rule of India, and the guy who was probably most instrumental for gaining India's independence. Um, and it's a long biopic that starts with him as a young, idealistic, but still fairly conventional, suit-and-tie-wearing lawyer character who gets becomes an activist by finding loopholes in the law that he can exploit for money and mm -hmm. it ends with him as this iconic sainted um you know uh uh indian spiritualist essentially mm -hmm. and revolution leader and it's the journey and it stars a guy who'd been in a bunch of movies up to this point but a dude who the world was not prepared for in the role of gandhi uh sir ben kingsley and it's in this, he's, we know what a good actor he is, obviously, but we didn't know. You just didn't know at the time. So when you're watching The Stranger do this amazing stuff, it, it takes you by storm when you see it. And the huge widescreen Indian vistas and the, the filming of the uprisings and the, the show trial that came afterwards. And, and even more so, something Gandhi has that other films of its type don't have is it still full of his, even amongst the tragedy and the carnage, it's still of revolution. It's still full of his weird, ironic, British ironic sense of humor. So when something, most terrible thing in the movie happens, he cuts to a bunch of stiff upper lip British guys, bureaucrats, like super underselling what it actually was. And it's comical, but it's horrible. Mm -hmm. And it shows that, that, that comical sort of thing in this in context and how damaging it really was. And it's just, it's a powerhouse film for that reason. I really, yeah. really still, when I see it and it ain't one you trot out. No, you, you have to plan, you have to make a hole in your life for it. <laughs> yeah. It's that kind of movie. You know what I mean? You, you, you got to make room for it. You got to get it in your head. It's got to kind of be, mm, I kind of want to watch Gandhi. And then you got to, find its spot for it to watch it but it was best picture 1982 deservedly it was a totally different kind of storytelling in that it was this very old-fashioned epic storytelling and yet it has it, it's not old-fashioned it's has a completely modern aesthetic in terms of how it views these events that it absolutely fills it full of energy in the way an old school Epic might not. It's not Lawrence mm -hmm. of Arabia. You know what I mean? It's on that scale, but it doesn't have that standoffish, we are figures from history kind of thing to it. it. It's immediate, and you're right down in the dirt with these folks, and you go through everything they go through. And the, if you're a creature of empathy in any way, there's no chance you won't get caught up in the story of Gandhi. And Gandhi's a guy, like Walter Hill, they have hey, they have this in common. He wasn't certainly into the lady folk either. So even as a sainted hero of our times, he's he got his flaws when you go back and go through his writings and stuff. He was yeah. very traditional yeah. Indian after all. Um, 
but it's still an extraordinary story. And as I said before, I don't remember what we were talking about, but the flaws, the flaws don't make you turn you against the movie. They make it feel more real in a tangible way that, that makes you connect with the movie more. Maybe they don't share your flaws. Hopefully, hopefully you're not a misogynist, but, but those flaws make it real. They make it come home. They, 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 they're the thing that make it, not a worshipful experience. And if right. you take that worshipfulness away, you can really connect on a human level. That's, that's the key to telling story, to making storytelling of this level work. And this movie right. does it better than any of them. You know, I, I think the first half of his next film, cry freedom does it in equal measure, but, it, but, uh, we have less of a, of a, human element to to spend that movie with we have to shift our allegiances and uh, that make it tricky this mm -hmm. one you don't have to do that it, it really really clicks and works i don't know sorry i rambled on a little bit there but no well so by the transitive properties of the academy awards every other movie that we're about to talk about is less than and not as good so um... yeah and i don't even know if that's true i don't know that gandhi no, know. ultimately like is a more significant film than et is for example no, no et no, no. i was just but it it for what it is you get it you get why everybody mm -hmm. went crazy about it and and it's a very it's the almost the easiest one a certainly easiest 80s movie because yeah you could say the same things or the same criticisms about like last emperor or some others but but gandhi because you just to say the word means the movie in a lot of ways and it yeah. means giant bloated historical prestige oscar winning movie more than any other movie probably throughout history it yeah. just in one word and i get that but that doesn't take away for a second the accomplishment that it is either so right uh, all right. Next up is a movie that we'll be talking about in uh, in, in a future episode. No. Uh, well, it depends. It'll either be next week we're talking about it or we already talked about it, depending on what uh, order we decide to release these episodes. Um, and that is uh, Paul Newman in The Verdict. The Verdict, actually, and not my favorite year, was the most requested movie, much to my delight right. on uh, our little thing. Can I say one more thing about Gandhi before we move on? Sure. Um, when I when I was in Kentucky, I was in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was having car trouble. My brake lines were rusted through, and so brake fluid was leaking, so my brakes wasn't working. Only those like emergency flippity brakes were working, like like I was driving an old Model T or whatever. And, mm -hmm. and I don't remember, and it would be a funnier story if I could remember the context. And I eventually I'll make one up so I can tell this funny. But this guy. He was not from Kentucky. He was from out east somewhere, but I couldn't pinpoint the accent. But he says, he literally said to me, I don't, I'm not Mahamahat Gandhi to me with regards to like payment issues and stuff that we were discussing. <laughs> Mahamahat. Mahamahat Gandhi. Mahamahat Gandhi. Okay. That's that's funny. I gotta find a way to put that in something. Mm -hmm. What do you think I am, Mahamahat Gandhi? Everybody would know what you're talking about there. Mm -hmm. Although uh -huh. even that was a completely inappropriate example of a person that he was using. I don't think Joel he had actually seen the film. Probably not. Yeah. 
I would I would guess that I would hope that uh, frankly I would hope that he hadn't seen it. We're gonna talk um, about the verdict in detail in just one week, so we don't have to spend any time on the verdict here, which is pretty cool. Just know right. that those of you guys who said, "Hey, the verdict," there were a couple of you. Just I love it because I love the verdict. It's the verdict is is one part of my double feature for the next double feature episode, which is our next episode. Right. Um, it's a David Mamet script directed by Sidney Lumet. It's his second movie of the year. Um, it's his, it's, I mean, with respect to death trap, which is super fun. This is, his, this is the movie. Um, and stars Paul Newman as an alcoholic lawyer who gets a case that's righteous, that's righteous. And he buys, he does what every lawyer should not do. And every story where a lawyer does this ends in tragedy. Um, he buys into the righteousness of the case to the to the point that he can't keep track of his own good or his client's good on his sort of march to uh, to justice, which is a mm -hmm. dubious thing to try and achieve in the justice system. And it's a fantastic film that I adore. Um, we'll see. It's going to get picked apart a little bit. For there's a couple things in it that are a little weird, but it it's just. Newman's so good in it. It's just, yeah. it, I mean, Newman's just so good in general, but he's so good in this film. Um, he became, as the 80s wore on, he became sort of a goofy old man character actor, which he really did well. But these, mm -hmm. this group of films here in the late 70s and early 80s, where he was the aged, seasoned leading man are, are my favorite films of his in his whole career because they're all chosen for very artistic and mercenary reasons, working with the right people work. The script is finished and it's awesome. You know, it's, they've all got these yep. same things in common um, and stretching yourself dramatically in one, one way or another. Uh, they all share those things. And that's what I love so much about them and the verdict if you're a Paul Newman fan, obviously you got to see it. If you love, if you love those rainy, I guess it's more of a snowy movie than a rainy movie, but that sort of dark, cloudy, heavy weight of the world is sort of on this film in a way, and it's a really great look at the back rooms of justice in of 1982. It's got fantastic supporting performances by. Uh, uh, the place Jack Warden, who plays his friend and fellow lawyer, and James Mason, who plays opposing counsel. Man, is he great yep. in this film! And there's a bunch of other great performances too, but the family that he's trying to help, uh, um, and a rather stunning turn by a woman he picks up in a bar and starts a relationship with during all this. Uh, Charlotte Rampling, it's it's maybe the best she's ever been in a movie, and she's been yep. good in a lot of really really good movies. So. So we will be talking about that. You'll hear us talking about that in more detail next week. Yeah. With, but uh, thank Michael you for requesting it, you guys. You really made me feel good. Because I was, there's something my two double features share. They both, which they share a bunch of things. They share Paul Newman, for example. That's a, the obvious one. But they share a bunch of things. But they share one real dubious thing from this time period that I think is worthy of discussing. But I think that really undermines both films. And I was glad to see you guys wanted to hear us talk about it because we mm -hmm. will and i appreciate that um for me uh you know it was i was very disappointed in our listeners that this one wasn't requested 
uh, more uh, because of its because of its brilliance. Because I mean, I know we talk about a lot about sequels and doing the same movie again, um, and you know, and and sometimes you do that with great success, and sometimes not so much. And I think I think the answer um, on this one is fairly clear uh, uh, on on where this sequel lies, and that of course is Airplane Two, the sequel. Um, and yeah, so we uh, we you know we get to go revisit Ted Stryker and Elaine Dickinson, uh, but this time flying to outer space. Yeah, why not? Going, um, going it Airplane Two is I I don't differentiate the two airplane movies. So this movie, none of the same people worked on it. Which I, I was know. surprised. I assumed everybody came back for this film because it's a, as did I. It's the same. It's got the same humor. It's got the same everything, and it's it's got just as many laughs. I mean, it really is as good in every tangible way. I'm not a big fan of either airplane movie. I'm not a big fan of that Zucker Abrams clown mm-hmm. show. I've never been super into it. But it's like a Family Guy episode in a way. I mean, God, if every damn thing is going to be a joke and you're going to get three per minute, and if even if you only laugh at half of them, or even if you only laugh at a third of them, you end up laughing a lot. And that's alright. I mean, if it's going to be that kind of thing, and you laugh a lot, then I guess you did a pretty good job. It's just got a lot of things to like about it, but it's not really worth going into. It really is the exact premise of Airplane and it really is how can we and they wisely it, airplane didn't become like a series like the naked gun films did or whatever um it it stopped here they they captured lightning in a bottle twice and wisely said enough right because by 82 the 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 whole disaster formula was pretty much a thing that was dead in the water so you really couldn't keep lampooning it effectively i don't think right but right. the whole up the stakes, the space shuttle trip, the commercial flight to the moon, the the all the same characters, even the same bit players are back to to great effect. It's fun. It's funny, and it's even a little less crass than the first film, which I think it benefits from. It's 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 easier to watch. It's more of a guilt free watch. The racial jokes and the misogyny jokes are are not here in as fully throated away as they are. In that earlier film, so which yeah, that's a, because that's those a really good point. those while mm-hmm. funny. I mean, comedy. We'll talk about this someday. You know, comedy goes out on the edge. Part of it lives on the edge when it lives at its most effectively. So I get why it takes on those things, but mm-hmm. and I don't hold it against the films ultimately over time. But I am happy when you made a madcap comedy that didn't feel the need to go there too. I appreciate that. So. Um, the other movie that, is, you know, a lot of people felt Airplane 2, the sequel, maybe the funniest movie of the year. Uh, the other movie that was probably in contention for the funniest movie of the year uh, was um, was this next movie uh, starring Kevin Klein, very funny, um, and Meryl Streep and Peter McNichol. And that, of course, is Sophie's Choice. Yes, by Alan J. Pacula. Uh, director yeah. of Joel's favorite movie, and um, and Sophie's Choice is an interesting movie. Um, someday we'll tell the story of Sophie's Choice and the, the, its failure to get its sequel off the ground, Sophie's Second Choice. But okay. un- since well, since we're going to start talking mm-hmm. about this movie by making fun of it, and I'll get my one Sophie's Choice joke out there. Uh, 
it's it's funny because it the Oscar Meryl Streep won the Oscar for it. Her Oscar winning scene has been shown to the world. Everybody knows the scene where the choice happens. But the, it the thing that people don't know about Sophie's Choice, especially if you haven't seen it, but even some people who've seen it and have just forgotten what the hell the movie even is, mm-hmm. is is that that's a flashback to something that happens before the movie starts, and it's the only right. time you spend in that era. And the fact that that's the most interesting and most powerful thing about the movie that's not even about Sophie, because it really isn't, it's about McNichol's character, and it's secondarily probably about Klein's. She's it sneaks up on you what her haunted past is because she's the one that in a conventional way is doing her best to go on with her life. Whereas Klein is it's really one of the best, at least of the era, and maybe it's in contention for best all time, uh seeing what it seeing what an extreme bipolar person and what living with one from the outside is like because Klein Mm -hmm. is our best buddy and our hero and is this captain charisma sometimes who takes us on amazing adventures and then he's this demon from hell that calls out all our insecurities and embarrasses us in front of everybody and makes us feel terrible and his his swings from to, from extreme to extreme are it takes a special kind of performer to pull that off in a movie, and he really does. Even though he didn't win the Oscar, he was he was in a tough category this year right. <laughs> to, to have pulled that off. It's an astounding performance, and Peter McNichol has always been a, completely aloof. As a leading man, he's a worthless leading man. He, I love Dragon Slayer. I like this movie, but I think as a leading man, he's just terrible. He really didn't find his way until he found his way into being a character actor, which is what he's always was supposed to be. And then he's pretty outstanding, actually. But his his sort of I'm a you know the, all these stories. Gatsby's is another one. I'm a writer, and I'm writing about writing. And I look at the world or American Beauty, where the kid's like a filmmaker. F you, American Beauty, because it's so pretentious and stupid. And anytime you see a movie from that person's point of view. It can be good. It has been good. It's good when you're mm-hmm. reading Great Gatsby, but when you're watching it, it's just like, God, what a what a head up his own ass, like just worthless person. And they always seem to be that, and McNichol does not. He tries, he really, as an actor, he gives it his all, but he does not rise above that terrible cliche. So what you're left with is crazy, bipolar Kevin Klein and super mousy hiding this terrible secret that doesn't seem to have anything to do with the actual movie Meryl Streep. And of course, they're both genius, and that gets you to the end of the thing. But Sophie's Choice is a movie that's hard to love because what is it? Right. Um, I, I don't mind human stories being messy and i guess in the end i don't mind this one it works it's it's a ride worth taking because it's unique but what is it what is it it's not that scene back in world war ii it isn't if that's mm-hmm. the kind of movie you think you're going to see you're not going to see that at all really so what is it it's hard to put your finger on what it is actually yeah. and partly that makes it feel more real because it doesn't follow this dramatic arc that can easily be defined but when you take the the standard dramatic arc out it you do miss it you know at the same time maybe that's wrong of me to feel that way about this one but that's my take 
that's my take on Sophie's Choice. It's yeah, it's a challenging movie because it's odd. Yep, and it is. Yeah, it's odd. It is. You know? It's a very cha- yeah. It challenging is. It's not a lighthearted. It's not a lighthearted film. Uh, it is, and yet is, it is. Lots of it is. It is. Well, yes, and it, well, I think it's it's. Anyone it's who goes into Sophie's Choice expecting yeah. the heavy drama that it promises right. really doesn't get that. No, it gets a lot no, of lighthearted right. crap. It gets the light. It's the lighthearted, which is what makes the heavy stuff hit harder. Probably, it's that. It's a very good drama in that way. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, um, all right. So the next I, step it's, is it's a, it's a bipolar movie about a bipolar guy. Like there you yeah. go. That, maybe that's the point of it. Because because you do expect. You you may not know what it is, but you do definitely experience that roller coaster. That's the one thing the movie certainly provides, yeah. without a doubt. Yeah, uh, I'm not entirely sure how to talk about this next this next film because uh, it's a movie that is problematic in many ways. Um, but the fact that a uh, African American man, uh, an underemployed reporter, finds himself literally purchased as a toy for a rich spoiled brat. <sighs> you guys prior and jackie gleason you know look if the movie didn't understand what a loaded thing that was then okay i would hate it but it does mm-hmm. it gets it is make it's although it's making it in a cheesy light-hearted fun romp of a film it's ri- directed by richard donner who doesn't want to get too deep in the darker meanings of it all but it is. It's a guy who owns a department store and owns an oil company. or It's like a, some sort of tycoon played by Jackie Gleason who brings his yep. kid into a store in the middle of the night to pick out whatever he wants for Christmas so that he doesn't have to give it any thought. And he finds this late night security guard goofing around on all these toys and stuff and says, I want him. And because this guy's the richest guy in the world, he buys him. And because Richard Pryor's character needs the money, he agrees to be bought for a limited amount of time. It's extremely distasteful, but the film knows the film knows that. Yeah, the film I knows mean, that, yeah. It knows that. So it's not... You, you, you can't levy these criticisms as it that what a distasteful thing it is when it's exploring that issue through that lens. You know, I, it really is doing that. Um unfortunately it's just not a very good movie it's not a super funny comedy richard pryor improvising on the wonder wheel and i mean that is gloriously funny i still laugh out loud at that stuff but the rest of it's just sort of it's just sort of screwball comedy stuff that doesn't rise to the level of its rather inflammatory premise and it's sad that it doesn't people i mean People mm-hmm. it, people learn their lessons in easy ways. People grow up in obvious ways. It's got everything you want, but it it it's such a dark premise. It deserves to have a little bit more of a dark, complicated ending, and it doesn't. It's it's a it's a cheesy, happy fa- family fun movie that's too scared to be anything else. And given that it's given that it starts where it starts, it's that's sort of unforgivable. But it's not bad. It's it is funny. Pryor is good in it. Gleason's great in it. If for this style of stuff, but I don't know. Am I making yeah. sense or am I? Yeah. Well, no, you're right. It, it's just, yeah. It's, Donner I mean, Donner doesn't stick you with a horrible black comedy. He just refuses to do that. We talked about this with Scrooge. Scrooge is a terrible, cynical, 
cocaine-induced, like, late 80s bit of ugliness, and Donner directs it so that when you're done, you walk out of the theater singing the song at the end. Like, he just does not, as a filmmaker, succumb to the darkness. And this was a film that has darkness at the heart of it. It needs a director who will explore that, and he just doesn't do it. Yep. You could argue um, he saves Scrooge from being a terrible thing, but with the toy, he just sort of, it just sort of exists in this, what is it sort of world, and that's too bad. Right. Um, so remember how uh, Clint Eastwood made uh, Firefox earlier in the year? Mm. And it was really, well, he also directed and, uh, it, uh, and stars in Honky Tonk Man with his son. Bob Eastwood. No, what's his son's yeah. name? Kyle. Kyle, because he's got a bunch of kids. Yeah. Um, read the premise for Honky Tonk Man. It's just a, yeah. a pretty good movie. Um, it's a biopic, a, a musical yeah. biopic that he's he's very adept at those. Birdie is one of his best films ever, and I'll let you read the premise for this, and then we'll move yeah, on. Yeah, it's just a boy with a musical talent goes on a journey with his uncle for a stage concert. Um, yeah, Clint Eastwood is, uh, I mean, he loves music. He, li he, everything he does is music based. Um, he, you know, when I saw, I once, I think it was like a 60 minutes article or a 60 minutes story on him. And that's, I remember him saying that it's like most, a lot of his directorial work he does sitting at a piano, just sort of playing and, and noodling around. And it just, it lets his mind go to where he's, he wants to do. He's a very accomplished jazz pianist and he yeah. really, really loves jazz. Honky Tonk Man's not about jazz, but that love of music is in the film. Yeah. And this is very much the era. This is when he made two movies a year and it was the one for them, one for me movie. This is the one for me. Mm -hmm. And it didn't make much of a dent and not that many people saw it, but the ones for him are the ones typically throughout the years that have held up as the best films. And so it's worth mentioning in that way. Plus it was a pretty big holiday time. Uh, well, not super big, but relatively big enough hit for as obscure as the subject matter was. He was a big enough star that he could pull this sort of thing off pretty well. And he did even, even the nepotism involved, which this definitely was the era for intense nepotism with Clint Eastwood. And there's never not been a nepotism era for him. It's, it lives on <laughs> to this day. So, but it, it, for the most part, it works. It works. Um, so we have, uh, you, you know, we, we talked about my favorite year. Um, but of course my favorite year is not the year of living dangerously. Oh, wow. That was 82, oh, too, was huh? A, God, I made a, this list, and these keep surprising me. It's what happens yeah. when we do multiple shows, and I don't look back at the list in the middle of the week while we're waiting around. Mm -hmm. Oh, man, Year of Living Dangerously. I don't know where to start. Peter Weir directed the Year of Living Dangerously. Um, yeah. This is another... Uh, does this really come out in 82? That's what it says. 1982. How could Meryl Streep and Linda Hunt both won Oscars for Best Supporting Actress in 82? Did um, Linda win well, for Best Supporting Actor somehow? Because <laughs> she's playing a guy? Or did, was uh, she just nominated and didn't win and I'm remembering it no, wrong? No, she, she won. And it was for this. Had to yeah. be. This is the kind of role. This is weird. No, because this something's wrong. Because this is weird. 
It says 1982. Mm. Oh, that's Australian Film Institute. I'm looking at the wrong. You know, no, I'm looking at so 1982, but it says the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, uh, Linda Hunt, in 1984. So this was counted in the uh, as in an '83. Fair enough. So that, that's I, weird. Hey, we talked about it. That happens. Um, I wonder if it's because it was released in Australia in '80. Uh, in 82 is why it's considered a 1982 film. Yeah, because it's the first ever screening of it that counts. We talked about that already. So, but this movie made its bones in 83, and obviously the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences considers it a 1983 film. That's how you get to win an award at the 84 Oscars. So, mm-hmm. You're Living Dangerously, Peter Weir, Sigourney Weaver, Linda Hunt, Mel Gibson. Very good. We will talk about that next summer when we talk about Year in review, nineteen eighty three. Yep, another. We'll remember uh, another to get it on solid the list. year for movies. Well, just bow. Um, I think it's. I can say, well, it has to be this way. But I, when the Academy says otherwise, I think we kind of, for the sake of discussion, I think we kind of got to roll with what they yeah. say. So, or yeah. it will just bring confusion to the situation. And it, and it allows us to move on to Burt Reynolds and Goldie Hawn in Best Friends. Hey, a uh, nice domestic comedy mm-hmm. uh, here at the end of the year with a you know a couple of big stars. Oh, after five I remember- successful years of living and working together, a couple decide to get married. But what they don't count on is how to survive the honeymoon. Nice. Yep. Uh, Norman Jewison, Norman Jewison film. Jessica Tandy's in it. Burt Reynolds. Brown silver, uh, yeah. Turd Ferguson makes the Turd Well, I've ne- I don't I know that I've seen this, but I don't remember yeah. a goddamn thing about it. So I just don't yeah, have anything really, to say. Yeah. Um, really but it was a but this really was a reasonable size hit say. movie with stars. Jewison's a for real director. Uh, you can't skip it, but we're going to kind of skip it. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, what what is there to say? It's a it's a relationship well, comedy, and it's got a look. Song this is that was up this is Academy Smokey Award, and the Bandit so. sequels, Cannibal Run yeah. sequels, Hooper, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Like the the era of what Reynolds was as a movie star is right here in 1982, yeah. and the fact that he is doing a domestic comedy that he has no sort of producer, um angle on or you know what i mean it shows you that even even at this time when the formula for him was very clear bert was always trying to do these what i call domestic comedies or domestic dramas Mm -hmm. which he was always trying to connect with real people he was always trying to show up in movies with actual like other stars that would help elevate him not just his cast of sidekicks and and he was always trying to work with good filmmakers when a good movie came along. This isn't a particularly good movie or a particularly memorable one, but it is cool that he was part of that during this era, and it is sort of a forgotten thing about him. We remember, like, when we think of Stallone, it's the same way, although Stallone earned this, I think, a little more than Reynolds did. We remember the iconic stuff. We remember the cowboy hat the trans am and we remember the guy that did all that stuff and then we say oh but he also did north dallas 40 and deliverance so he was an actor but he was an actor the Mm -hmm. whole time he never stopped doing this sort of thing and he deserves a shout out for that because bruce 
Burt Reynolds is a really underrated actor, in my opinion. But when you become a movie star, you do that to yourself to a degree. You really, you really stop being able to disappear into any sort of role. And Goldie Hawn yep. is exactly the same. She's the female Burt Reynolds. She's it's yep. You, when you hire Goldie Hawn, I mean, for better or worse, that's what you get. And you can, she can go through, she can be in like a thriller or something where she's not a zany, clowny comedian, and that's fine. But then, how good is she at that? Pretty pedestrian. <laughs> so, yeah. But at least in this film, she's kind of in her element, and he's kind of not. It makes for a fun mix, but not a great movie. Yeah. By anyone involved. So tell me, Ryan. Are you an Erskex guy or a Skeksis guy? Oh, Skeksis. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Skeksis. Um, this, yeah. More than that, but, I'm a, yeah. mm, I'm a mm. very specific kind of Skeksis yeah, guy. Yeah, you are. Yep. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a Chamberlain. Is that the guy's name? Yes, you are. I believe you are right. Mm. Um, mm. If I, if given the opportunity to talk like that the whole day and be a cowardly, self-serving bastard from hell that sucks the life out of other beings to be immortal, yeah, that's pretty much the way I'm gonna. Yep. I'm gonna. I'm gonna follow that yep. life path every time. Yep, the Chamberlain. Uh, Chamberlain. It was Frank Oz that did that, of course. Oh, yeah. Um, and of course, we are talking about the Dark Crystal. And things don't work uh, out for him very well either, and that's sort of no. why. I, that's the other reason I identify with him. But, <laughs> uh, Dark Crystal. Yep, Dark Crystal, nineteen eighty-two. Jim Henson, Frank Oz, um, putting the Jim Henson uh, workshop uh, to uh, to extra to extra work, saying, "Okay, let's up the game. Let's do something. Let's let's do something that's not Kermit and uh, Piggy. Let's do something that is darker. It's right there in the title, Dark Crystal. Um, we're going to put a P in front of that G, and, um, and we're going to try to tell a big old fantasy story here. And it works pretty well from a design standpoint. I th- it was a Trevor Jones that did the music for Dark Crystal. It's pretty cool stuff, actually. Um, and really the puppet design and the, the world building is actually really, really interesting. What's where the film is a bit of a miss for yep, me, if it, if it is a miss at all, maybe it isn't, it's pretty great actually for what it is, mm-hmm. but where it's a bit of a miss for me is our heroes are difficult to, uh, they're they're kind of kids and they're also puppets and the elf elflings what are they called gelflings the gelflings the gelflings um I, they're the ones i have tough with you know gary kurtz who produced star wars and empire strikes back and return to oz and this he said uh he said he really thought it would be a good idea to actually cast two children in that role in those roles make the roles a little smaller but make it their journey and have humans play that part maybe with appliances or something but don't mm-hmm. have them be puppets there might have been a way for the audience into this in a better way and he said i wish my when i look back at dark crystal i'm really proud of it but i wish i would have made that argument stronger so that more people would have listened to it at least they it wasn't up to me but i i really still believe having these humanoid like characters being played by puppets just kept it 
surreal in a way in the places in the film where the realer it was probably the better it would be but it yeah. is dark it is dark on the list of every once in a while somebody puts out these uh, like and i these are kind of distasteful because they get gross and they're very slasher oriented typically but they put these lists out of most horrifying or elaborate death scenes in films and uh, one mm -hmm. of the highest ones always ranked is the it's called innocent podling from the from the dark crystal and when they came time to do a sequel to dark crystal they they doubled down on that and actually didn't kill a conveniently anonymous person that way but somebody that you really grew to like and admire and it's really horrific i mean it really is horrific and on most mm -hmm. lists it's 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 not usually number one but it's like two or three it's right up there at the top every time the greatest of course death scene if you really want to know is the way uh uh what's his face dwight yoakam's character dies at the end of panic room Yep. I believe he gets effectively killed in like eight different ways before he finally goes down. It really is a, a kind of uh, mystery suspense death special. But this film has that in it. it. It's got that. It's got the weird way that the Skeksis and the other guys are like connected, and there can only be inhabiting the earth at the same time because you know so every time you lose a bad guy and you're happy you watch a good guy like disappear which leaves you conflicted so there's all this weird stuff that 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 are the things of nightmares for kids truly and i was affected by it in that way but i i was affected by it negatively you know when you show something like that to a kid you remember it and it sticks with you and i still watch it every now and again and like it but it 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 I I turned against the movie as the movie went on, if that makes any mm. sense. And it, it never really got me back. Even today when I watch it, I'm like, yeah, I'll watch it because it's accomplished and it's awesome and it sounds and looks great and the puppets are amazing. But I'm not going to get super involved in this. And I'm glad that it's not actual kids and it's puppets because I don't really give a shit about these puppets. They're not people. And I like watching it as an older person with that sort of distance because I think if you really buy into what's going on in it, it's... It's an ugly story, man. Yeah. Even the Dark Crystal is not on our side at all. It's this all-powerful thing that it wants to be whole, and it we're sort of rewarded for making it so. But it's it is it it the whole world of the story is this dark, awful place where it's enough just to just to live, just to survive it. Mm-hmm. And that's how I kind of view it. And maybe I'm taking it too seriously. It is just Muppets and stuff, but. I think that I think that's the story they told. I'm pretty sure. So, yeah, it's a dark, dark story. Do you With like a it? Dark, dark. You probably like it better than me. I mean, probably. Yeah, I think I do like it better than you. I like it. Uh, I mean, it's uh, again. I'm. I'm I like it better Cham than Labyrinth, which it's most often compared to. I like it yeah. way better than that. Yeah, but Chamberlain. I mean, Chamberlain is such a fun villain yeah. character. Uh, and I, so I, I just, I always just love, and he's such a wonderfully despicable character. Uh, well, and really, such layered brilliance to it because he's yeah. not the leader of the bad guys. He tries to be, and he's totally taken down a peg, mm -hmm. but that, that jealousy, envy, resentment, all of the sins of man live in him in this intense way. Yeah. 
And and what you get isn't a maniacal evil mastermind. What you get is this petty little ugly thing that just wants mm-hmm. revenge and just it, it's and that really is yeah. like it's it, you know it clearly states out of the gate that you know that the Chamberlain is not going to be he he cannot win by sheer power he cannot force his way he cannot kill his way to the top but right. he can undermine. And yeah. subterfuge, <laughs> right. and he, you know he can be the power behind the power, yeah. uh, and you know, and it's um, yeah, and it's really, really great. Uh, I I agree with everything you're saying. The the um, the Gelflings are they're weird, they're awkward. It's 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 like I know I'm supposed to care about you, but just get me back to the Skeksis, please. Um, I want to watch that political intrigue. It's like I want to watch the political intrigue of the Skeksis. And all of that go on, and then, but then the Netflix sequel yeah. is really accomplished and really, really great. It's a series, not mm-hmm. a movie. Before yeah. you dive in, it's twelve episodes long, twelve half a day of your life to watch it. But it, it, it really ca- captures some of that. It's a prequel. It tells the story of the yeah. split of the of the and the Skeksis' rise to power and. And it's a little light, Joel, on the Skeksis. And I think that's why it's not that good. It's Gelfling heavy from a mm-hmm. storytelling standpoint. Yep. And that's not bad, but it, it's it's yeah. it's weird, man. I, it's a brave story for them to have told. They told a different, totally different kind of thing. And it's like I said, when I was praising other things for them this year, it's uh, Tron. You know, it, it lives up to that. It's... It's like nothing you've ever seen before and like nothing you're going to see again. It really is its own thing. And that is kind of super impressive. So, mm-hmm. so I, I like it a lot, but I don't, yep. I, I'm, I just don't have that warm, fuzzy, you're an old friend feeling about it the way I do lots of other films of that type from this yep. era. And the reason is because that darkness, I just don't, I feel like I just can't embrace that. And I really feel like I can't have fun with it. So, right. Um, let's talk Tootsie. Let's do it. Uh, Tootsie, um, Sydney Pollock starring Dustin Hoffman. So good. Um, it's such a good movie. It is a good movie. It, it, in it my is. opinion, it does not hold up well. Well, it's very of its time. I don't yeah, know if that means it doesn't hold up well. I, that, that's not kind of yeah. how I view it, but I, it is very of its time. It's trapped in yeah. time. It's super 1982. So it has yeah. all the racial and sexual politics of 1982. And it's a movie that's about sexual politics, literally. So it's going to be outdated. And it is. Yeah. I've heard it ripped I, on for, for being a, a, like a trans movie, but it isn't that at all. It, it's not a guy who's a trans person. It's a person in no. d- disguise as somebody from the opposite sex. Right. And the point of the um, movie is living that person's experience p- makes him evolve and change in a certain way. Right. It, it's, it's also, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it is, it's a very much, I mean, he is, uh, uh, Michael Dorsey is a despicable dude. He is absolutely, to, in that. my world, I wouldn't go that in my, far. in my opinion, he is, he is absolutely everything that is, that is, and as a character, and this is probably intentional, 
but I've known people like this, you know, in the years that I lived in New York, I knew people like this. Sure. They are the reason why people hate actors. Yeah, yeah. He is, he's a, he's the reason why I hate actors. It's <laughs> right. a reason why I often don't like acting, even though it's what I've been doing from the majority of my life. Sure. It, and he is absolutely undeserving of all of the success that he is get that he gets. It's true. And yet, and yet we are supposed to sympathize with him. Um, so that when he, when he takes on this and I felt this way seeing it years ago. Uh, but it, I mean, cause I'm just like, he's not, he's not worthy of getting any of this success. He's a jerk. He's well, a I, dick. True. And I think the movie shows that actually, and the movie demonstrates it halfway through the movie. When we've spent a lot of time with Dorothy, his alter ego, he shows up at this swanky penthouse party at, you know, as himself. And he goes up to the woman that he's made this connection with pretending to be a good woman and hits on her with this bit of inside knowledge he has. And it, it literally blows up in his face. And yeah. it just shows you that as a guy, this guy's terrible. And I, I think that's true. I, I, the film does that on purpose. I mean, he's so self-involved and he's so annoying. And it, the drama that he brings with him everywhere he goes is so just overwhelms every situation. Like it's really, really irritating. But there is something that happens there, I, that I really believe this is the magic of this film, and it's sort of the point of it. Even though, even though you you have to come back, you are who you are in the end. You have to come mm -hmm. back to that to a certain degree. But that character he creates becomes a real person to other people, and in a lot of ways to him. Dorothy's a Dorothy's a good person in a way he's not. She looks out for other people in the way he doesn't. She she is diplomatic and clever and finds her way through situations rather than just freaking out at every little thing or taking offense at every little thing the way he does. He he does live this experience of this other person who becomes a better person. And he admits, even though we don't think we really see it, I think you've got a point here that a lot of people wouldn't admit to who really love Tootsie, and there are a lot of people who do. He doesn't really come to the point where that woman... It has made him a better man you know he says to Jessica Lange at the end of the film he says I was a better man with you as a woman than I ever was as a man and what he means is that I need to be more like that I, I haven't I haven't arrived there yet but I need to take that lesson with me into the future and then maybe we can have some sort of maybe I can be somebody worth sharing time with and sharing a life with mm -hmm. and that's but that's just the first step. And the movie's very clever about that. It, it doesn't, you get the feeling they're going to go out on a date and things are going to be okay. But the movie absolutely refuses you to, gives you some reunion where he talks his way into earning her yeah. love or anything. She's extremely right. skeptical of him in the, that final scene, just like she should be. He's a fraud of a person. The scenes, the best scenes, still my favorite scenes in the movie to this day. Bill Murray's really fun, but my favorite scenes are... Mm -hmm. Or him and Sidney Pollack battling it out the way they battled out the whole time yeah. they were making the film. And the film's real secret superstar is an actor that I don't ever really love in much of anything. It's Terry Garr. Terry Garr's so good in it. Because she's living it. She's living it. And she she gets the brunt of all the self-serving awful shit that he does. And... Mm -hmm. 
And yet, and even though she she's comes off, you because Terry's so great, she can lay it out there. She that's why you hire her because she could lay the emotion out on her sleeve. She reacts to all this stuff, but deep inside Terry, there's this woman who's lived this life and knows you got to get up the next morning and you got to go back at it. Like she's a survivor of a character. I love that about her, and I love it more and more about her as time goes on. And I think I think the farcical stuff in it really still works like a charm. The Dabney Coleman's fantastic in it. Charles During's great in it. I mean, just TikTok through everybody who makes an appearance in the film. They're all doing such great work and such a clever script. But the script's clever. You know, I think yeah, Joel's mm-hmm. on to something. I, I think Dustin Hoffman at this point in his career, because he wanted this to be a much darker thing. It was Pollock who, when he was brought on, wanted to make sure it was a light entertainment that people could enjoy. And I think that balance was necessary. I don't think it's anywhere near the classic that it is if it didn't have that light hand when it needed it. But in the yeah. end, has he grown really? He he impersonated a better person. He showed he's capable of doing that. What's next? Mm-hmm. And she says, I miss her. I miss Dorothy. And I remember when I was a kid, the end of the movie, man, when he takes the wig off and everything, I, just, I felt gutted because I felt the same way. This person came to life in front of our eyes. Where did she go? She can't just be gone. Like, I felt that. And that, I think, mm-hmm. is a really powerful trick that the film plays on you. And she is gone, and you do miss her. And it sucks. So yep. that's my that's as deep as I can get about Tootsie, I guess. Yep. <laughs> so speaking of missing somebody, and it sucks, that brings us to our last movie uh, of 1982. Kiss Me Goodbye with James Caan, Sally Field, and Jeff Bridges. Um, I really liked Kiss Me with Goodbye. I, that's another one where I saw it on cable a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. That's where I saw it. Yeah, they. It's it's again. It's a kind of sort of guy named Joe type story where one of the guy or ghost without all the histrionics and bullshit mm-hmm. and pottery. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so just to make a quick jab yeah. of the premise, right? Um, Khan plays a character who dies and then adds to become something of a guardian angel for, uh, this, the, the, the coupling of his ex that he still loves with Jeff Bridges, this other character who he's supposed to be advocating for. And of course that's a love triangle. It's an otherworldly love triangle. That's really, really delightful. Mm-hmm. Um, it also, it's same way as Tootsie, same way as some of these, it, it also doesn't, you don't want to look too close at the thematically what's going on. You really do need to treat it like a farce and and accept it for its bigger ideas, not its sort of ugly reality of what the thing is. Because it's it's about jealousy and overcoming jealousy, and that's a hard thing. We're we're jealous people. You can see how the envy and jealousy like turn the Chamberlain mm-hmm. into this little ball of evil. And it, that's how it works on us. And yet, it's the most human thing and the easiest thing to relate to in the world. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And this movie works. Khan hated this film and he quit acting for half a decade because he just, just thought it, he, he'd gotten as bad as he could be. He was as bad as he'd been in it and it was bad. Mm. So that's how he felt about it. And that's I respect that. But I, it's... 
But it d works, though, as a light comedy, and I really like it. Who's the woman in it again? I'm sorry, I didn't say her name, and that's important. Uh, Sally Field? Yeah, so it, it's got so, so much movie star charm amongst those three people. Um, you know, I love Sally Field. Yeah. She's great. She's sort of the perfect person to be in this because she's her... She's the perfect person. She's the perfect person. She's the perfect person. I had to do my, my Sally Field rule of threes delivery. Because <laughs> she's... Her neuroticism is what make her character so fun. Mm -hmm. And that this character relies on that really heavily. And I love, I love Jeff Ridges as a romantic lead. Yeah. I'm very sad that all we have is is old codger Jeff Bridges now, and that there's no semblance of that other guy that's ever going to come back to us. Although he's making the most out of that, Indeed. I actually feel like the dude sort of ruined him forever. Sorry, dude fans, but not a fan of the dude. You know, I I, I don't disagree with you. He really, I mean, yeah. W once the dude came along, he. I think the dude is probably very close to who he is in real life. And so therefore it's like, so he's like, I don't need to be your matinee idol anymore, baby. I'm yeah. the dude from now on. Or if I must be, I'll be grabby old, old guy. I'll do that. I'll bring mm -hmm. on my, I call it crotchety old Jeff Bridges voice. Anyway, kiss me goodbye. It's a great way to end, but I don't have a yeah. lot to say about it because it is a frivolous piece of fluff as well. But I think Khan's really cute in it. I certainly don't think it's worth break, stopping acting for. It's, right. You know, right. it's nice, but we'd well, had I, I similar types of films up until this point than that. So I, I kind of. I, I, I mean, I, 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 sort, I, I, keep, I keep, I didn't know that. And I keep wondering, it's like, well, did, was it because, like, because he's really, he gets to do oh, a I, lot of really showy things yeah. in, the, in, in this movie. And is it because his showiness wasn't praised enough? Maybe afterwards. it wasn't a big hit movie, although it's a popular yeah. movie with everyone who saw it. Um, I, but I don't think it's the movie that made him quit. I think he was burned out. And I think it, the film was like a last straw of a type. I really, it can't be that it was the yeah. film itself or the experience of the film itself. But it does have the feel of a film that is fun to watch, but maybe wasn't so fun to make. Tootsie certainly was torture to make. Yeah, I bet. Really, really tough to make, and, every, and you know, and like, it, and it's weird because the relationships were all flipped on set. Dabney Coleman was the good guy on the set, you know, who kept things from exploding and getting out of hand, you know, like mm -hmm. there, it, 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 so the relationships were all sort of opposite, which is sort of interesting. But uh, Tootsie's has a lot of magic energy on screen, and 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 Kiss and Goodbye does too, but it's not. It's just a cheap romantic fantasy. It it doesn't. There's nothing else you can really glom onto that has any meaning. In right. It, unlike a, at least right. a few of these things we've talked about. So, but as far as cheap romantic fantasies go, it's pretty cool romantic fantasy. It's yeah. got both the romance and the fantasy in spades, and it's got a lot of really fun farcical, funny elements. So, and no pottery. I can't stress how important. There's no goddamn Let's... pottery in it. There's no, no pottery. romantic pottery in it. You know, there's no, yeah, there's, there's no pottery. There is, uh, there's no, um, macrame. There's no, uh, needlepoint. <laughs> None of that. All right. We got to bail out of here, boss. Next week it's double features. Check back in for that. That's going to be fun. Yep. And the fireworks are going to show, or and maybe there won't be a show next week. 
we really don't know what's going to happen. You know, where no one is guaranteed tomorrow. Um, well, thanks for taking, thanks for joining us on this uh, little trip through one year in movies, chronologically, 1982. It was fun, um, wasn't pretty, it? Please let us know. We're insecure about everything we do. Tell, uh, you oh, know, absolutely. Let We're us know if message. traveling yeah. through 1982 and only being able to spend a few minutes with each film was even worth it. I think when you do it in order like this, you really get to relive the year and you really get to see what it was like and yeah. what came out the next week. Like you, the, that Some of that is lost. Some of that you remember because you remember seeing Dark Crystal at Christmas, right? But some mm -hmm. of that is lost to time and it's fun to get it back in a way. Yeah. And so I so, like. I thought the idea was neat and I like talking about movies, but let us know what you thought, please. Or if we forgot any of your favorites in 1982 somehow. Indeed. Uh, all right. You reach out to us, Facebook page, uh, The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan on Facebook at Ask Joel and Ryan, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and of course the the movie show with Joel and Ryan page here on YouTube. If you are watching the video version of this, uh, give us a like, give us a subscribe, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell anybody, tell that person on the street that you pass by on your way to work. Um, all right, everybody, thank you so much for joining us. Double feature time is coming up. Woo. Take care, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan. Remember, all views and opinions represented in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the speaker and do not represent those people, institutions, or organizations that the speaker may or may not be associated with, unless explicitly stated. None of these views and opinions were intended to malign or deceive. And now, here's the producers, circa 1982, to play us out.